Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. Chapter 251 Hesla Admiral Karen Gawaga Senes, Commander Task Force Diamond, had been in the Terran Confederate Space Force Navy for over 200 years. She had dozens of fleet actions under her belt, having risen from a humble assistant fire control officer all the way up to her current high rank. Her last command before the command of the Task Force had been the Leviathan-class warship Glorious, a monster bigger than even the LARPA's super-destroyers. Now her flagship was a battlecruiser, mainly built around a command and control center, but it was still in the flight after nearly two weeks of solid combat. She glanced at her status board. Armor was reaching critical levels, the steamboat Woody had taken a few hits to open base that had driven deep into the ship's core, but she'd hulled, and the engineers had the damage either repaired or mitigated. Her nanoforges were running hot, to the point that she had to run them in shifts, but her magazines never dropped 38% the entire flight. Her task force had largely consisted of vessels being lent to the Talcon as they integrated with Space Force, but she still had all of her ships even if only a third of them were above 50% combat capable. The Betty Boop had come the closest, taking multiple hits to the drop cradle bays, but the captain had managed to fight his way through the initial ambush and the successive waves of enemies. Gravitational anomaly is widening and showing traces of psionic energy, her scanner tech reported. Alert, all ships to hold fire, let them get clear of the distortion, I want to look at them, Admiral Thennis said. Let's see if this Bosco's guns is right. Three, six, nine, twelve, many, many dry sources, Commodore Kavash said. Coming in by threes, looks like Commodore McIntosh is right. Getting the details now. There was a hushed moment of silence on the bridge. Drive matches across the board. These are the same ships, it's confirmed, Kavash said. Reading negative damage, minor adjustment to weaponry. No new classes, nothing new to throw off the estimates. Compliments to Bosco's gunnery, mate, Dennis said. She leaned back slightly, as well as one could in a crash couch. Execute, be kind, rewind. She watched as the ship slipped out the gravitational anomaly in between Hessler and its moon, the same one that the flight of strikers had used to squirt themselves down to the planet two weeks prior. Has it been that long? Dennis wondered, checking the shipboard clock. Like most of the crew, her personal chronometer was off. There goes Sneaky Snake, Commodore Gavash said, highlighting the ship on the tactical display that was running hard to break orbit. He still thinks we can't see him. Wormhole transit successful. Probe is reporting back, currently running stellar cartography to determine position. Lieutenant J.G. Ketamk called out. Now we've got you bastards, Dennis murmured, leaning forward, her crash couch whining as it shifted. 
Type 4s are losing command and control. They're reverting to local control, attempting planetary landings. Another Hubbard Task Force command called out. ID positive probes going to silent running, waiting for next wormhole opening, Katamk said. Sneaky Snake is rolling, trying to get out from under the guns of the boop. Looks like he didn't expect her to be combat capable. Then a smiled. A cold, predatory smile. Enemy forces are attempting to break contract. Adder three ships are reporting ready for combat. Another voice. And lo, I hath lifted up a rock, and here I doth propel it through the air with mine strength. The evolutionary arms race hath come to naught. The planet be mine to rule, and all shall be mine to devour now, she thought to herself. The snow whispered as it fell from the sky, piling up on the ground. Her breath steamed in front of her as she tromped from the lakeside towards the hidden cavern. She was bundled up for the cold, having followed the advice in the books and her companion. Mr. Mew Mew jumped through the snow with her, his tail flicking back and forth as he would vanish into the snow, then explode out in a spray of white, then vanish again. Danbury went around the corner of rocks, sighing with pleasure as she saw the cabin. The windows were dark, but that was to be expected with the heavy curtains over the glass. Smoke came from the chimney, but that was to be expected. They had a tiny fusion reactor, but preferred not to turn it on in case any of the sloppies were around. She stopped outside the door, brushed off her clothing, and then hurried inside, letting Mr. Mew Mew slide in before shutting the door and putting a blanket back over it. It was warm in the cabin, and Danbury felt a sudden fatigue come over her. Knee crawled across the clean wooden floor, kicking with her little feet, her hocks and knees flexing like they should, getting stronger every day, until she reached Danbury. Danbury looked down at her baby sister as the infant grabbed tightly onto Danbury's heavy pants and slowly, trembling, pulled herself to her feet, hocks and knees shaking. She reached up and smacked Danbury's knee, obviously trying to reach up. Not quite big enough, are you? Danbury chuckled, resting her hand on the heavy Terran soldier's pistol that rode on the holster on her hip. Good girl to stand. Good girl, Puni. Puni glared with her beautiful amber eyes and dropped back down to her hands and knees, crawling back over to the couch. Any problems? Danbury asked, kneeling down and undoing the laces on the heavy boots. Knee ate a bug. Danbury's little sister True said as Danbury got off her boots. Tough crap for the bug, I guess, Danbury said. She flexed her toes and her midfoot joint and sighed. True called me a stupid head, Elu, her little brother, said accusingly as Danbury walked through the cabin's main room. Don't call your brother stupid, Danbury said, leaning over and smacking her sister across the back of the head. Ew, those fish are stinky, True said. You won't say that after I cook them, Danbury said. She set the fish on the counter and reached out and got a little rod that Mr. Mew Mew had given her. She tapped the end, then slid the rod into the gills of each fish. After a second, the two little LEDs turned green and she got to the next fish. None of them had an atom smasher sickness. She smiled to herself as she got out the heavy pan and put it on the stove. 
She checked the bottom door and saw that the coals were still burning. Thank you for making sure the stove didn't go out today, Ilu, Danbury said, opening the cold box and pulling out a bottle of fizzy brew. I don't want to eat cold food from the can again, Ilu said as Danbury took a deep drink of the bottle. Puny managed to pull herself up and look at the low table next to the couch, smacking it with her hand. When she saw that what she was after was missing, she glared at Danbury. Sorry, Pni, it's not for babies. Danbury chuckled, putting her hand on the pistol. Good girl to stand up, though. Nee just glared and sat down. Danbury smiled as she started following the instructions on how to clean and prepare fish for eating. It was warm in the cabin, and the echoing boom of the war was just a reminder to stay where they were. Danbury wasn't even aware she was humming a song that she made her little brother and sister a dinner of fried fish vegetables, and self-heat pack of starches. Her day had gone so good that she laughed when Puny tried to bite her when she was feeding her starchy goop. I love you, she said to the baby. She looked at her little brother and sister. I love you. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 252 Welcome back to Space Smashing Opinions, the attractive Terran descent human female said, leaning back in her chair with a crystal flute full of champagne and bubbles. She was dressed in the current Solnet Talkstream fashion, her left mammary gland exposed and covered in a sparkling diamond glitter, right thigh exposed and dusted with microprisms that made her leg glow with a soft nimbus. Long, crimson hair that rustled and shifted as she moved and spoke with the crackling arcs of electricity moving through the long, wavy curls. Slightly larger than normal, iridescent cyber eyes and spiked hover heels with straps that went all the way up to the mid-calf. I'm your gracious hostess, Almanac Krikik Grawaha, she smiled. She turned and motioned with her champagne glass to the Lanaklan sitting across from her, who was dressed in a high style, an elegant black suit with thin lines of diamond pinstripe with a flowing cape that shifted randomly through the pleasing pattern of random colors and flank covering showing random landscapes. I'm here with Vukulu of the Great Herd, author of the I Was Busy Grazing and Missed the Slaughter, and his newest book, We Am Become the Great Filter. Thank you, Almanac, the Lanaklan said puffing up his pipe and looking at the camera with a steady, if slightly arrogant, gaze. I'm glad you turned in to listen to my wisdom as well as my hostess's keen analytical mind. Almanac raised her glass to the camera in salute to her viewers, then turned back to the camera. That was quite a statement you made during our Q&A segment, and my viewers would really like a further explanation on such an inflammatory and downright scathing observation about your people. Vukla'u nodded slowly, puffing on his pipe. I am, of course, aware that you must possibly mean my claim that directly ties into my latest book. Well, some promotion is to be expected in talkstream circles, Almanac laughed. Well, as I state in my book, each sapient species eventually faces great filters. Now, I personally believe in several more than your socio-scientists have theorized. But then, my people have possessed a simulacrum of civilization for a hundred times the amount of time your people have had fire. Vukla'u'u stated in mysterious tones. 
The audience loved watching him, despite the feeling of anger and revulsion he instilled with his arrogant demeanor and superior attitude. They watched just to be outraged in some cases, in other cases in hopes that they'd be in the call-in and got to debate him. Although every being who had so far debated the Kautar, as he was called, had ended up being made a fool of on Solnet, much to the amusement of everyone watching. Almanac could see her view account rising. She'd just been one of the many Solnet talk streamers lecturing the void until she'd been approached by Vuklu, with the view count lucky to break 20,000 during live showings. Now she could see that nearly two billion beings were turning into a show. She'd gone from a nobody talk streaming in her little apartment with barely any audience to a superstar with a production crew, holocam operators, sound and lighting techs, and an audience that hung on or argued with every word. Well, that isn't exactly the contention, is it, Vuk? Almanac asked with a predatory smile. Vlokloo thought it interesting how the first, that smile, of all the things meat-tearing teeth had alarmed him, and now it made him quiver with anticipation of having someone willing to argue with him, or have him argue with an invisible audience. Oh, uh, quite so, my dear, Vlokloo said, puffing on his pipe. Indeed, I postulate in my new book, available in the electronic and traditional format, as well as lecture-hollow versions. The barcode and purchasing link for the book appeared underneath him with a picture of the cover of the book. Vuklu stared with barely concealed superiority at the viewer. Two million beings hate-bought it right then and there. That where your people manage to bypass each great filter through the uniqueness of your evolution as well as your inherent sociological pathology... That my people not only failed the Great Filter, but did so in such an astounding manner that they became part of the Great Filter, he continued. Interestingly enough, that same Great Filter your species bypassed, but risked being taken out by a previous Great Filter. Almanac saw that the tens of millions were making guesses. Her legions of chatroom moderators were working overtime even bringing in the EVIs to keep some semblance of order in the EVR rooms. As all of you know, since you are intelligent and wise enough to take the time to view this show, the great filter your species plays with is a self-extinction via warfare filter, which is actually great filter one, and one of the first most species overcomes through cooperative survival mechanisms. Vuklu said, polishing his pocket watch carefully, even as he puffed at his pipe. Herd species overcome it, Almanac corrected. Cooperative species overcome it. The majority of competitive species do not pass that filter. However, your species is strengthened by it. A most interesting paradox at the subject of my next book. That's not how any of that works. A study in Terran descent humanities paradoxes which will be available in the next few months. Vuklu said. The pre-order links appeared and millions rushed to order a copy, half of them infuriated by the picture of a finely dressed Vuklu patting the head of a dirty, ragged head, squatting Terran dressed in a loincloth, poking a stick into his own nose and buying it merely to be able to attempt to refute the Lanik scholars' opinions and observation on their own Solnet platforms. 
Our species eventually, as did yours, encounter the genomic filter, or filter 18, as my people believe. Vukluu continued his albanac, poured both of them a new glass of champagne. Your people, fractured, fractious, and argumentative as they are, did adopt some other dangerous technologies, bought wars over the application of genetic manipulation, and eventually settled for your rules of informed consent, which I theorize is a type of filter bypass system your species discovered quite early back, back when you had only bronze metals that you had to work hard to extract. That would be the early works such as the Code of the Humarapi, Almanac said, clinking one shining sparkling almond-cut fingernail on the crystal of the champagne glass. A Bronze Age ruler of ancient terror, not the warlord of the Transviscus cluster. Links appeared below Almanac, including several VR educational classes. She got a small cut of each of the 30,000 beings who, uh, out of curiosity, signed up for the classes. My people discovered genetic manipulation, then discovered the biggest threat of genomic filter. Vukluu said, he paused, tapping the ash out of his pipe and repacking it. Long-time viewers leaned forward, knowing what it was about to get good. The so-called happiness gene and its manipulation, Almanac mused. What's wrong with the wanting everyone to be happy all the time? She voiced the question of millions of viewers' minds. With no lows, there can be no highs. Vukluu snorted, looking at her she'd, she'd suddenly become stupid. With genetically enforced happiness, a being is happy even as they are starving to death or being subjected to the most horrible conditions that do not outright kill them. That do not outright kill them. Pictures came up of Lanictalan space factories, cities, mining worlds, billions, every one of them completely content. Happy, even, as I was, slaving away their lives in the pursuit of absolutely nothing. Vukluu said. He shuddered dramatically. Not even the pursuit of happiness, because their happiness is genetically forced upon them. Not in pursuit of love, because genetically imposed happiness overwhelms the desire for one to seek out amicable, romantic partnerships. Not for fame or glory or anything else, because their very genetic code makes them happy at all times. He shook his bovine head. They are little more than one of your animated appetite-driven dead. A zombie, Almanac said. All right, say that what you say as so far is right. Defend the rest of your statement that now that you are a part of the great filter. She said, leaning back and smiling. Once my people had completely been enslaved by the so-called happiness gene, we then utilized pharmaceuticals to ensure that even if the gene was unable to do its work, an individual could not realize it. Vukluu stated. He kept his eye on the side and saw the different species that the Lanictalan stewarded over the last hundred million years. Not content with that he said, when he saw the images were being put between Almanac and him. We then performed the same genetic manipulation and drug regimen on every species we encountered, becoming, in fact, the great filter personified. The universe, terrible, malevolent, and cruel, wrapped us into the great filter and sent us into the stars to ruthlessly press our hooves against the face of those species while yelling, You are now happy! 
at them even as they tried to squirm away. He shook his head sadly. And those that would not submit. He paused for a second and Alman acted one of her famous inhales, making her chest rise impressively so that she could interrupt at top volume. We propose to use one of your species' historic activities. A final solution, he said. Just like my people plan on doing to your confederacy. And uh, if we resist, Almanac asked sharply, sitting up. If we look at you and raise your hoof and plant it on our face and tell you no step on snack, then what will you do? Vuklo'u snorted and shook his head. Well, then, my dear, according to the philosophy of the great herd, he looked at the camera. We will spectacularly commit suicide by Terran by the trillions until we finally manage to reach out and gentle you too, bringing you into the embrace of the great Volta. His eyes got a particular gleam. After all, what chance do you have when you can't even bring back two extinct genetic dead ends your species is so enamored with? The chat rooms erupted in shouting as links to donation sites for feline and canine restoration programs appeared. Almanac smiled inside, watching the numbers. Vokla'u calmly finished refilling his pipe, using his implants to order vodka trog red grass for his estate's galloping lawn as the money just poured in. He was surprised at just how correct Almanac had been as literal billions of credits flowed into the restoration programs just to spite him. It's good to be me, he thought to himself. Mantered free worlds. He's just so goddamn smug. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highworlds. I don't know which one I love watching more. Him or Ba'anyard. Nothing follows. Tinvuruga snort. He practically gloats over what his people did to mine. He just sits there with that stupid pipe and gloats and brags about what his people did. Nothing follows. Tolkien, Forge Worlds. I hate him so much. Him and that stupid pocket watch that he's stupid pipe and that smug expression. Nothing follows. Uncle Tacker Stolt. I've never wanted to yank out someone's pin feathers and toss them from a cliff so bad in my life. How dare he smugly talk about how they destroyed our people? Nothing follows. Digital, artificial, sentient systems. And yet, he's telling all of this to an audience of tens of billions. He's detailing every one of his people's crimes. Every single incident of crimes against sentience his peoples have done. Not only that, but has gone past that. Do you think we should butcher every land we see? Even the ones working in the factories. Nothing follows. Darkwin Forgeworlds. Well, um, no. They're genetically modified to only feel contentedness and drugged up. It isn't their fault. Nothing follows. Ackletacker stole those poor people can barely think through the haze of drugs and genetic alteration. You don't slaughter people like that. You should do your best to help them recover. Nothing follows. Tinvarud Gestalt. Oh my god, he's actually showing us that the average Lanarktalan is just as much of a victim as our people are. Ugh, I hate him even more now. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. I know, right? How dare he make you realize that things are not just black and white? Nothing follows. Tinvarud Gestalt. Right, wait. 
You tricked me. I want to change my answer. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. L-O-L. End of chapter. Chapter 253. First Contact by Ralts Bloodthorn. One thing Muxted had grown used to, that he thought that he'd never be able to live with constantly, was the tingling, itchy taste of blueberries on his back teeth from the psychic shielding being cranked up so high that it caused random sparks to pop on metal surfaces. But that consideration was far and away as he feathered the graviton engines and slipped into the side, slightly, weaving around the copse of particularly large trees. It was still snowing, and would continue to snow for months according to the weather services. The flakes were of heavy metal and other particles not normally used to create the core of the snowflakes. His scanners were full of ash, even with the EVI compensating for it. But that was another thing that he'd gotten used to. Just like he'd gotten used to the growling, just beyond his hearing, that seemed to emanate from his TDH he got near... Striker dismount teams had been altered. Two TDH in combat armor, not Warborgs, acting as gunners and dismount crews. All of them, no matter what their previous rank, considered privates for the sake of the chain of command. Like most Talkans, Muxtet was slightly concerned about the Terran battle madness. But at the same time, as a Talkan marine, he was somewhat unfazed by the fact that the Terrans had devolved into basic kill motherfreckers and break their stuff mode. Muxted fluttered to the port side engines and slid around the communications tower that was blackened and damaged. Its capability destroyed weeks ago during the fighting to secure the combo bands. Muxted still thought it was interesting that the Terran military actually had ancient protocols to deal with Terran battle madness. Those species, not susceptible to whatever it was driving the Terrans crazy, took over leadership and logistics support positions, while the Terrans all shifted their basic infantry training and moved to combat arms. He could understand that, otherwise you'd be face to face with a huge, angry primate telling it that it wasn't allowed to fight, which meant that you had a reasonably good chance of being fighting the same primate over whether it was not allowed to go to fight. Front towards the enemy, bubbled up Eddie's mind through the data link, followed by the pull, pin, and throw. Both of them images of a mantid or trianidad carefully arming a human, pointing it at the clankers, and running away. Off in the distance was a flash of atomic cracking off. His rad detectors weaving through the spike before the rumble washed over him. His neural link let him know that it was a low-yield, low-output tactical weapon of 125 kiloton range. A fairly clean neutron weapon from the looks of it. Groundburst, which meant lots of uptake. He saw his targets and set up waypoint markers, secure in the knowledge that the three striker units following would have the markers show up on the HUD. He slowed down, confident in Plamex's ability to run the EW and stealth systems dropped over the road. Burnt-out cars, destroyed in clanker strafing runs, and goonie-goo-goos had done their brain harvesting, slid by under the hull of the striker. Flamex was good enough to keep the graviton eddies from whipping up snow as he slid between the burnt-out semi-tractor trailer and a jumble of cars. The highway ran straight for almost off the highway ran straight for almost five miles, then curved to the east and Muxter kept one eye on the stealth meter and dropped his speed attack to reduce the grab air eddies. 
His neural link tossed up an image of tiptoeing Tarkin, no caption, which let him know that more than coupler's signal that they were beyond the ad hoc makeshift communications networks that the Tarkins were using. He slid around the corner and saw the goal, a massive highway interchange designed to handle heavy cargo vehicles with six lane highways. The bridge was burnt and blackened, but still intact. There were no vehicles underneath the bridge, something that normally would have kicked off Muxted's paranoia. But he knew that three weeks ago it had been used as a makeshift fortification by elements of the 367 armor to let their tanks cool down. The striker slid through the tank size gap with meters to spare on either side, moving under the bridge before Muxted kicked the landing gear out and settled the striker down. The graviton engine spun down and Muxted exhaled explosively. Stealth missions were a bitch and he cursed the universe for ever coming up with them. He was a marine striker pilot. He preferred direct action. Which is why this mission promised to be good. Alright, everyone warm up the nanoforges on your ammo bays. Engineers double-check the weapon systems and the psychic suppression systems for all non-terror troops. Dismount teams, prepare for deployment. Muxton ordered across the command channel. It only took a minute for everyone to signal back green. Now comes the hard part, he thought to himself. The waiting. Time seemed to take forever to tick by, each second seeming to take longer and longer. He had to admit that he was worried about the piece of equipment in one of the petty weapon bays. Still, there was an order from the Admiral in orbit who had finally managed to make contact with the troops on the ground after nearly two months of being out of contact. She had identified the method of the enemy's arrival, how they were making insertion, and had informed ground sight that the reinforcements were on the way. Digital Omni-Messiah knew that they could use them. Henry Green, good to go. Waiting signal. 973 reported. Popping stealth drone, Muckstead warned everyone. He reached out with a muscle he hadn't been born with, and a panel opened at the side of the striker. The drone slid out instead of being magnetically fired, rolled in midair to deploy a thin wing membranes and coasted away, using the plane's EM field and gravitational field to move. The drone's view was in the upper right corner of Muxted's vision, and he closed his eyes, watching the drone he knew Kappa was piloting. It moved down the highway, weaving between the burnt-out and damaged vehicles, most with the roofs ripped apart, humming quietly to itself. The limited VI on board was eager to be sneaky, excited to be quiet as it shifted and slowly banked into the woods. It knew that it was deep in enemy territory and was excited to be a part of the plan. The drone wove between the trees, gaining altitude so that it had banked around the branches. Finally, it could see the target and banked to slowly circle it. A large open area with apparently nothing in the field. A closer look showed that the snow was churned into mud and that that mud sprayed up at odd times for apparently no reason. Once in a while, there were hints of purple flashes, hints of purple sparks, and suggestions of shapes. The drone settled down on the branch with a good view, letting its wings drop down and the snow start to cover it as it watched with optical lens only. Foregoing its complex and myriad senses, using only the analog system and the optical lens. I see you, Muxted thought to himself. He settled back, 
waiting, the engines on standby, the nanovultures warming up, his crew ready. He knew this wouldn't win the war, that one battle might turn the tide of war if the aftermath was properly capitalized upon. But a single battle winning the war was a thing of Tri-V specials. But it wouldn't hurt. The chronometer burned in the corner of his vision. 1634LT-52.8535 Admiral Karin Goraga Thenis, Commander Task Force Timat, watched as the TCS FNV Scrooge McDuck disconnected from battlecruiser TCS FNV Popeye and began moving back towards the gas giant where the TCS FNV Daisy Duck had already vanished into. The two massive extractor refinement ships had done their jobs, bringing matter in for the battered ships of Task Force Tiamat to use to fuel the nanofortures and creation engines to carry out the repairs and reloading. Time to enemy arrival, she asked, setting down her crash couch. Three hours, Commodore McWalk said without looking up from her instruments. She was keeping an eye on the twisted gravity of the eddy between the planet and the moon, watching for certain grav streams that start increasing and kick to use her words. Any answers to our distress calls? Admiral Thennis asked, glancing at the ship's chronometer on her own. They were slightly out of sync, slowly widening over the last. Oh man, how am I going to explain it in the reports? She asked herself. I hope this works. She looked around the bridge of a battlecruiser, noting the where. How the battle steel deck painting had slight ripples from the constant foot traffic on it. How the solid keyboards normally held for backup in case of hollow keyboards went down. Had the letters and numbers and icons carefully repainted and restenciled. The main display flickered as two technicians lowered it. Most of the red pixels on the display were black, long use having made them give up. She glanced at her DCC port, which one of her crew members had attached to her crash cradle, weeks, months, years, battles ago, to allow her to not have to rely on data packet switching. All green across the board. The damages from the fire on Deck 19 had been repaired. The matter tanks were filled. The nanofortress and creation engines deslushed and cooled down to the lower edge of operating temperature. Commodore Navdren leaned back, rubbing her swollen stomach, then shook her head, looking at Admiral Thennis. No response to our distress calls. The hypercom is undergoing the same problems as we are. It's completely compromised, she said. She winced. Damn. Kicks. Eh, anyway, the marines are still holding the power plant and are expecting to be able to repulse the enemy in two hours. Admiral Thennis nodded. All right, let's get ready. We can keep this up as long as they can, she said. She looked up at the ship's chronometer again. 1634.41 LT-52.8535. Then, at her own... 0432.22 LT-263-8572 Three more hours, then we shall remind you why we're the indefatigable Chromian Hammer, she thought to herself. We are the Terran Space Force. We do not yield. The eternal purple light of dead space swirled, streaked, and remained perfectly still around her. She stood on a showbridge, as was proper. Her short skirt flooded, her jacket ruffled, and her hair swelled around her as she was in the light breeze. Her skin was flawless, except for the long slash across the base of her throat. 
The crop in her hand was a wand of flexible wall steel held tightly under the armpit as she held her pose and stared out the cracked and chipped Christeel window of the showbridge. She did not need any of the instrumentation that was silent, still dark and dead around her. Her mind was linked directly to the massive ships hurtling, sliding, still in space. She knew in some indescribable way where she was. Around her, the ships of her armada, the undying fleet, moved through depth space in perfect stillness, the dead cores filling their black drives with a bitterly cold fuel that allowed them to move through a place where the Big Bang had been stillborn. Glory! All ships prepare for real space entry. It was bellowed in silence in a thunderous whisper. Yamato, we are ready to engage the enemy. Marat, we sing the songs of fury. My Kantai captain and I raise our voices to sing a song as one. She nodded. Marat's enthusiasm was a fiercely reflection of her own cold anticipation. Bismarck, we are the beast made of war steel, the hammer of the Chromium crowd marine, the terror of the seven dark spaces, the ruler of the dark matter waves. We are the Bismarck. She gave another nod. Singing duck, my duck's a pretty duck. The Antaeus fleet, the dark fleet, the undying fleet, woo through dead space in utter stillness. She had heard the call of Sakor, felt the request for reinforcement, saw the echoing need for relief. She was Bologna of the grave-bound beauty, the Admiral of the Lost Fleet. Raised up from the sands of the betrayed bloody Mars and into an unlife by the touch and breath of the digital omni-messiah himself. Task Force Tiamat would have their relief. Glory, none be peed away. Hellspace screamed and groaned in pain as the black ships ripped their way through the destroyed hyperatomic plane. Hundreds of ships with wrath to match the Hull space, with minds that could no longer be broken, twisted, or warped by the strange energies and dark whispers of a murdered plane of existence. Aboard one ship, the pink and white paint smeared almost haphazardly over the baroque architecture of the ship's superstructure, a raging battle was taking place. Pink and white gauntlets smashed into feline-human hybrid face. Young teenage girls with broken teeth and yelled in fury as they clubbed their rivals with a sign depicting the holy symbol of the English emoji. Chainsawed, swapped, and howled in fury as they clashed, all of it driven by a savage, howling glee. A screech from the balcony overseeing the massive troop bay sounded out, and all the heavily armored savages stopped in mid-action, dropping empty hands to the side or raising signs or chainsaws into the air. Joan! 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 Kawaii! Joan! roared out. She babbled in nearly incomprehensible English emoji for a long moment, then pointed at a hologram of a war. 2.46.15, the chronometer read, counting down by the seconds. Oh, Cyrus! An armored figure on the balcony screeched out. Oh, Cyrus! The pink and white painted horde screamed back. The feline-featured teenage girls, all of them centuries, millennia old, streamed out of the troop bay for their armories. Planet 4 was soon, and they would play their favorite game. Naxos' massive fist connected with the second strongest face, 
snapping the other green-skinned's Goliath head back as black blood sprayed from a split lip. Before the other orc could recover, he stepped in close, fists thudding home, ribs deformed, pressing on internal organs. Muscles were crushed against bone, and Gulrocker's nose flattened. The massive orc's eyes rolled back as he crashed to the deck. Naxar grabbed the bottle of whiskey mixed with the Hullspace ancient lubricant and poured it over his downed opponent's face. Garak's eyes fluttered, and he looked up through the burning red eyes, seeing his captain's hand held out. He grabbed it, allowing Naxar to pull him to his feet. Objection noted, Naxar bellowed, his normal speaking level. Prepare your men. Do not let the doggy girls outfight you this time, or I shall mount your head on the prow of my battle hulk. Garak slammed his fist into these heavy plates, covering his chest, and left to beat his orders into the skulls of his second in command. Naxar turned to the screen, staring at the twisting fire of Hullspace. That's gonna be good, boys, he yelled. Osiris! Osiris! His crew roared back. He knew the enemy had to be close to destruction. Never had a group proven so resilient, but entropy could not be denied. It had taken them eternity to master the pouring torrent of history, present and what might be. But they had done it. The universe was theirs. Nothing would stand in their way. The fleet was armed. Thicker armor, heavier guns, more powerful engines, stronger shields. This time would be the time the enemy would fall. They were riven, harried, and depleted. A tiny dot appeared in space, a twisting, twirling point. A figure eight made up of the stripe of pseudo-matter with only one side. It began to expand. The fleet would be victorious, and once it attained victory, it would have always attained victory, and the past defeats would be wiped away leaving them victorious over the first system of many. One by one, worlds would fall, and they would feast upon the bounty, as a bountiful and submissive universe provided. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 254. Hessler. Raul Vats looked at the rest of his squad sitting inside the striker. They were all immobile, still looking, and he knew some of them were probably asleep. They were nine in all, led by Sergeant Kuplo, a dedicated veteran of the first and second Talcum War who had been a Talcum Marine since before the Talcum Marines had been a thing. He looked down at his cybernetic arm, the war still scratched, pitted, and in a few places bubbled and pebbled. A smart link was warm trail of honey through his arm. His greeny, a tough little green mantid by the name of 525, was safely tucked away in the clamshell hump on Relvix's back. On top of the autocannon ammunition hopper that had nanoforge in the center that could spit out hundreds of rounds per minute for hours. Relvix knew the how far he could push his 20mm autocannon ammunition pack. He looked over at the Talcon 20mm Carmex XM4811E3 autocannon. A massive beast, capable of spitting up to a thousand rounds a minute, if he overrode the safeties and interlocked and had 5 to 5 help him out. Technically, the maximum effective firing rate was 450 rounds a minute, and the standard Talcum Marine Corps firing rate was 250 rounds per minute. 
which the Tarkin Heavy Sculpt Armor XM393E5 Smart Harness and the Ammo Pack could hand both supplying ammunition and bleeding off the heat of the weapon and the Nano Forge created. His own harness and ammo pack had additional heat sinks, more than he had possessed two months ago during his defense of the Hasselton town of Namali. Two cases were locked in front of him, carrying Stampy and Tiny Tim, both of which had been repaired with additional field modifications done over the last two months. A Terran had told him that it was normal for military force with all new untested equipment to have to make on-the-spot modifications to increase the effectiveness. Ralvex went back to reading the text being displayed on the inside of his faceplate. The words of the digital Omnibusaya. The rest of the bay all prayed, whispered encouragements to themselves, or talked to their battle buddies, hidden behind their black face shields. The two Terrans, each manning a heavy mounted gun, watched their assigned fire zones, eyes burning in red fury, their hands on massive guns that mixed neural pulses with 7.62mm endosteel armor penetrators. In the cockpit, Muxtet yawned, shifted slightly, and went back into his nap, the timer keeping track of the countdown, set to wake him up ten minutes before to give him five minutes to get ready and wake up. In Foxtrot 9 of 4, Volt next checked the status of his cargo and his troop bay and shuddered. He only had two passengers, both motionless, their hydraulics and pistons hissing now and then as pressure released. Clad in ordate graven wall steel from the Tarkin Forge worlds, the two massive war machines were actually silent. Known only as Zeta and Theta, there were two Tarkins who had given all during the frantic final defense of Tarkin II who had consented to be sealed inside massive sarcophagi hovering in the moment before death, in order to continue to fight for Tarkin and her allies by the strange forces that followed the dark crusade of life. They gave Faultnex the creeps, to be honest. He checked his timer. Ten minutes. Breeze looked through the binoculars, not using anything more than optical lenses. The day was snowy, something he absolutely hated. Mantids weren't built for frozen precipitation, and the snow on his adaptive camouflage uniform was still chilly to him since he didn't want to risk running power to the warming coils. The two-mile radius area that have churned mud still looked empty. He saw some slush spray up in the telltale rooster tail of the wheels spinning and nodded. He couldn't see them, but they were there. Freeze lowered his binoculars and checked his equipment. It was almost time. He turned two strides behind the dark horseman and nodded. The other black mantid lifted the laser designator, using passive optics to sight in the middle of the muddy area. He saw the hint of purple and two psychic shields rubbed against each other and twitched his antenna in eagerness. The cold, the wet, the muck, the damnable snow would all be worth it in a few minutes. Mark came over the data link as the microwave receiver he carried on his thorax got the signal from 227 field artillery. The rounds were on their way. 30 seconds. Muxtet feathered the graviton engines, staring at the burnt-out twisted cars just brought from under the bridge overpass. The charges were rigged to them to throw them away from the overpass, to explosively create a breach in the wall of the burnt wreckage. He could feel his guts clenching as he habitually reached out with his sensors to check his weapons. His cannons were loaded, no more energy weapons, all kinetic now. 
His missile pods were loaded and the Warboy VIs in the missile guidance systems had been hashed to be even more crazed than normal. Using the injured Terran's angry PET scan to base the random numbers off of. His door guns were fully loaded, the dedicated nanofortress warmed and de-slashed, ready to keep the munitions hoppers full. His dismount crew was all ready to go, all green. Above him the artillery rounds, heavy 11-inch rounds and 24-inch rockets, all fully stealth-coated, used chemical reactions to provide thrust and rotate, orient and make the final terminal guidance adjustments. The graviton booster had burnt out and been ejected miles prior. The shells, just non-reactive stealth-coated lumps of chemicals. Muxted tabbed up a piece of stem gun and leaned forward slightly, his hands on the stick, feet on the pedals, ready for the light winter amber. Rolvex saw the light go amber and used his data link to send a message to Stampy and Tiny Tim to get ready. The two tall gunners double-checked the ammo belts, their weapons depowered but ready to go at a moment's notice. The big Pontiac Vindicator miniguns were just waiting silently. The human's eyes were all red, burning softly in the light. Grab Eddies, here they come, Commodore Nguak shouted. Three, six, nine, twelve, many, many point sources, mix of new signatures and previous. She turned towards Admiral Thennis, the seam on the left side of her tunic giving out with a near silent purr of parting thread. This is a big one, ma'am. Bold fire, guns, update Tiamond's war plan. Thennis snapped. Hold off the thunder punch, let them finish getting through the wormhole. Sneaky snakes made an appearance, staying with the enemy fleet, Scan 9 said, brushing a lock of grey hair out of her eyes, clearing it off the cybernetic lens that had replaced her aged, ravaged eyes. They're all going all or nothing. Contact groundside. Then a snapped. Communications are down. Temporal resonance and fracturing is gaining strength. Commodore Navdreen snapped. One hand around her Betty. She put her hand on her ear. Ma'am, signal from our own ship. Ma'am, temporal wormhole detected. Connection to original arrival. Commodore Nguak called out. They think this is it. If they beat us here, they beat us back then. Then a snarled rubbing her aching knuckles. Legend, stand by to execute Ozymandias. Activate the dead man's switch. Aye, aye, man. Standing by, the technician said, pressing down on the big red button. He had wired it all up, prepared it all, done the math of the course of, uh, of, of years. He couldn't remember anymore. The button clicked as it slid home. If Legend took his hand off of it, it would fire. They're dropping ground forces, ma'am. Orders, Gunnery Officer Voltnek asked. Ground side can fight their own fight. We're gonna end this here, Dennis said. She half turned. Satis of Sucker Punch. Online and in position, Lieutenant J.G. Greedy said. He'd taken his mother's position when she died of heart failure 16 years ago. When you're all in, you might want to make sure that the enemy cards are bad, Dennis whispered. Her knuckles hurt. The joints swollen with arthritis. The ship's medbay had been stretched to the limit. Some of the crew dying of natural causes as the timer on their bodies ran out. It's the ninth millennia and we're dying of old age fighting this battle. She smiled. She glanced over where her son was paying close attention to his instruments, having replaced the Rygerian who had passed away from old age last year. Except we don't die. We just fall back in hell and regroup. 
Enemy forces breaking into three distinct groupings, designated Tango Alpha, Tango Bravo, Tango Bravo, Boltnik said. 21 exiting, 18 exiting, 15 exiting. Here it comes, Thedas thought to herself. Wormhole collapsing, Nguak called out. Sucker punch, active. Lieutenant J.G. Greedy called out. Backdraft gravitational energies have pulled Sucker Punch through the wormhole. He leaned forward. They have a lock. Targeting solutions locked in. He looked up. The wormhole closed, ma'am. No grav eddies detected. Either they aren't going to try again for a Sucker Punch was a success, ma'am. N.G. Walk said. Dennis looked up at the display attached to her chair. It was easily ten times the amount of ships that had come through the previously. Massive troop transports dropping shoals of parasite craft into the atmosphere of the planet or driving hard for the surface. So far, Venice's ship had just drifted, surrounded by what appeared to be debris. Fleet ready, ma'am, and Guac said. Execute Osmandius, Dennis ordered. Aye, aye, ma'am. Executing Osmandius, Technician Legant said and pulled his hand back, holding it over his head. The switch popped out. The signal went out to every ship in the task force. From every ship in the task force time, the signal went out, touching what looked like just debris. The debris hiding the actual payload vanished as the munitions went off. Temporal resonance and temporal stabilization charges went off. The latter a stuttering, shattering split second after the former. Space screamed heaved and shuddered as the temporal wormhole created by the precursor craft exploded into shards. Execute war plans. This is it. We are the Corovium Hammer. Dennis yelled out to all ships. Every ship announced their fully armed and operational status with fire plans that had been spent long minutes refining and updating. The precursor vessels found themselves hammered on by an enemy that had been assured was long dead, destroyed over and over by their previous selves. They fought back the sheer numbers making up for their weaponry. The repaired and patched and repatched armor of Task Force Diamond, taking hits that it would have struck decades prior. The temporal munitions rarely used had another effect, one unforeseen by the Admiral at a star. Where there was only purple light for a split second, as the temporal wormholes met the energies of the munitions, Time itself appeared for a split second that was stretched and smeared across eternity. Chronotrons appeared, shuddering and shattering. She saw them, a rainbow spray of something that should not, could not exist. A flare that screamed chip in distress to her senses. My beloved children, clear for action and prepare to surface, she whispered. None may impede our way. Marat, we are the unyielding fury of the betrayed terror. Around the planet, precursor troops just scored hordes of troops, both mechanical and cybernetic. Harvested parts gathered in previous harvests in decades past, wired into the mechanics of the unliving forces that had gathered them. Millions of Hessela staggered as a sudden wincing pain tore across their frontal lobes as their future selves intruded on their past and present selves. Then the temporal munitions went off, severing the link between the past and the present and the future with the fury of the fourth dimension munitions. Dropships began to tumble as the biological component, gathered in years and decades passed by the dropship, suddenly inverted and vanished into themselves as they had not been harvested for days, months, or years from the landing. 
computers shook off shock and activated programs not needed for dozens of landings, even as the copies of themselves around them shrieked and vanished. Ground fire reached up, focusing on suddenly revealed vessels as the shield and vessels of the past, present, and future vessels that may or may not be suddenly were revealed to be not. Still tens of thousands of precursor forces reached the ground instead of hundreds of millions. Freeze watched as the artillery barrage slammed into the circle, the first ten seconds detonating high above the patch, then rolling thunder of an entire regiment's worth of fire forcing the purplish-brew psychic shield to contract further and further. It went out in a shower of psychic sparks and Freeze clicked and clacked in the hand three times. The three electrical pulses sped down the wire late days before, touched the repeaters, and the charge picked back up the amperage as it raced through the wire after wire. In the dark cavern caused by a abandoned highway overpass that crossed one another, a dim red light lit. Inside every striker, Engage appeared on the inside of the smart armor glass. Muxtet stomped the pedals of the striker and screamed out from under the overpass, the hammer of the Krovian Kraut Marine has arrived, roared out in his head. But months of operating in psionically active environment made it so he didn't even flinch as he sped into a confusing hash of trees that appeared and disappeared. Gawking motorists who stared at the battered and beat-up striker that roared overhead, the pristine, untouched landscape where the highway would someday be built, and the wreckage-covered six-lane highway. 973 fed current into the temporal stabilizer that each of the strikers carried under their bellies. The world bobbled like jello for a second, but the muckstead was clenched his teeth and ordered his stomach to stay where it was. You tried to play that card one too many times, muckstead snarled inside of his fight helmet. He could see the target area up ahead. Lines were lancing down from the sky, connecting orbit to the two-mile radius area that was being hammered by artillery. Incoming enemy reinforcements. Orders, sir. One of the striker pilots asked Muxtet. Men aren't going to get another chance. Get the boys in there, Muxtet snarled. He'd given up telling them he wasn't, sir, over a month ago. Crom, enumerate the recent deceased. He roared out a badly translated tongue-in-cheek battle cry of some of the Terrans. He cranked on the battle screens to Max, knowing that the precursor forces had more to worry about than his energy signatures as the artillery began to find flesh and machine as individual psychically generated battle screens began to fail, and the hellish mix of munitions took their toll. The striker shuddered as the trees in front of him exploded into flaming chunks, the battle screen flaring but holding as Muxtead took the striker in at just above ground level, so close that he threw up a huge stripes of mulch in the sod torn from the forest floor, the three strikers following him like the body of a snake. Muxtet increased speed as he tore a giant strip through the forest. In the distance, atomic weaponry cracked off, the enhanced radiation output jacket sending a sleet of particles across the psychic senses of the enemy. The artillery stopped. Technologically manifested battle screens hit psychically generated battle screens as Muxtet hit the enemy line at nearly 300 knots. The question was finally answered. Rage-built Terran technology trumped cold intellect-created psionics. The striker screamed as Muxtet almost stood it on its tail, bleeding off all of his inertia through his gravitronins, creating an almost solid wall of energy three feet thick under the belly of his striker. 
The Terrans didn't care about the fact that they were nearly 90 degrees from the ground as they kicked the power to the guns and opened fire with the heavy vindicators, each 7.62mm round wrapped in a neural bolt. The energy-wrapped kinetic rounds hammered into the exposed creatures that filled the area. They were picking themselves up after pounding artillery barrage, some of them pushing themselves out of the wreckage of their fellows. Muxted thumbed the stud, letting the heavy daisy cutters get ejected from the bottom of his striker at the same time as he worked his feet to cut the lift from the striker and dropped. Dismount! Muxted roared over the comlink as the daisy cutters went off. Right side out! Left side out! Coupler roared out. Dismount! Clear! 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 Sergeant Coupler bellowed out. We are wreathed in love and glory! One of the massive warbounds roared out as it leapt from Fault Nexus Foxtrot 9 of 4. It leveled the massive dual barrel 40mm autocannon and cut loose with high velocity armor defeating, discarding Sabo depleted uranium war steel jacketed mass reactor rounds. Where the rounds touched, massive craters were blown in armor of anything that survived the hit. Not much did. I am buoyed by the laughter of podlings. The other thundered as a massive feet crashed two of the precursor creatures into the mud in a spray of lubricants, artificial blood, and liquefied flesh. It cut loose with a Halmex flamer, bathing the precursor cyborgs with sodium tetrafluoride hydrazine FOOF superheated to 1200 Fahrenheit. Even the precursor metals liquefied and began to burn at a hellish mixture. Ralvex hit the ground, his two cases slamming into the ground and unfolding behind him. Stampy and Timmy both unlimited their guns and Ralvex lifted up the autocannon, his vision full of nothing but targets. Oi, glorium omnipotence dextra gladius meows, in nomina tau qua, garatus podlings. The Talcan girl, no older than twelve, sang in Ralvex's ears as he squeezed the firing grip of the autocannon. The cannon roaring to life and slamming twenty-meter apex hex rounds down rage. The heavy weapons roared. Ralvex able to keep on targets with ease for long practice, lashing it across the heavily armored sides of the larger precursor machines. Five to five, let me know when the incoming guests are in range of my gun, Ralvex said, chewing on a piece of stone gum, even as a pure voice of the Talcan girl singing hymns filled his ears. Roger, roger, the green mantid said, busily balancing the heat and slush. Stampy beeped a happy tune and fired a pair of heap-high rockets into the side of a precursor Gunigugu flitter that had all six crystal bubbles lit up blue. The high-explosive armor-piercing incendiary rockets blew it in half. Muxted stomped on the controls and pulled the stick around, the port graviton engine shrieking, as he banged into a hard right, lining up the targets. Target-rich was an understatement as his thumb found the rocker switch and he pounded the precursors with his guns. The defiant fist of the Vodkatrog Navy has arrived, roared across the battlefields. Several of the smaller precursor cyborg crabs screamed as the crystal bubbles exploded outwards in a spray of blackish blood and liquefied neural tissue. A roar made Danbury look up at the ceiling, frowning, as she heard it ring inside her head as she changed Puny's swaddling. Puny took the chance and put Danbury's arm hard enough to draw blood growling and not letting go until Danbury had flicked her a half-dozen times on her sensitive little nose. The fight for Hessler was on. End of chapter. Chapter 255. Hessler.
Ralvex knew his lips were pulled back in a snarl as he let off the firing grip of the auto cannon, letting it drop onto the power harness. He reached forward, grabbed his barrel, pulled it back, twisted it, and pulled it free. A creature was charging him, six insectile legs under a bloated, soft insect body covered with patches of stiff, bristled hair. A torso that looked vaguely like a Lanarktalan with four arms, one of which was blown off. It was firing a heavy laser rifle, the laser bolts wrapped with the neural bolts, which did all of jack shit when they hit. Ralvex whipped up overhead barrel, putting his lips into it. It flew end over end, and the power armor enhanced force of the throw sent the barrel exploding through the lower half's chitin. A spray of purple fluid arcing up even as the steam exploded from the rent in the creature's side as the overheated barrels rapidly cooled inside the creature's tissues. He backhanded the brain claw, jumping at him with the clacking wall steel mandibles, shattering the armor glass globe covering the brain even as he pulled the new barrel out from behind him, from where it was nestled with one more replacement on the side of his ammo pack. 525 gave another creature a full burst in the face with his micro magac right before he shot it in the face with a BB-sized grenade right up the nose. It had exploded as Ralvex locked the barrel in, slapped the magnetic adhesion system, and lifted the barrel to the sky. Stampy, help! sounded out across his humped speakers, which was full of sounds that the Talcon Holy Wallsteel Choir singing hymns of bravery and purity. Atomic, 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 flashed across everyone's visors. Not that anyone minded. Stampy cut loose with his 80mm hullball, firing straight up, the 150 kiloton explosions going off nearly 4 miles up. He fired twice more at nearly 500 meters radii while precursor vessels vanished in the boiling maelstrom of hullball fire. The heat gushed off of Stampy as he deployed cooling fins. Tiny Tim was beeping happily, firing at the surrounding precursor machines, his heavy guns gripping and tearing apart everything that they touched. Ralvex leaned back slightly, his auto-cannon pointing, and kept the fire up at the ones that survived Stampy's hellbore. So far, so good, Ralvex thought to himself as the hymns switched and canticles of faith. Everyone still, and we're ten minutes in. Maxted gritted his teeth as he brought the striker around in a hard, banging turn, rolling to take a pair of missiles on the focus graviton band on the beddy of his striker. The missiles went off, the tungsten steel spears designed to rattle and shake sprang out of the explosion, and then hit the graviton band, warping and twisting and tearing apart. He finished the roll, the two Terrandor gunners firing the entire time the roaring, punishing fire of the two Platonic Vindicator miniguns hammering enemies. The striker bounced slightly. Muxtet feathered the engine to slide into the side, and Muxtet thumbed the switch and raked the outside line of the precursors with the twin 25mm quad-barrel guns firing APXI T-rounds. His missile parts were empty, the nanoforges fabbing up new missiles as fast as Muxtet would allow them. He could have fabbed them faster but a glance up at the atmosphere showed that there was a corridor coming down from orbit that was extremely thick at the top and was dissolving as it entered the atmosphere. But it was still some miles thick, packed with incoming precursor vessels, units, and whatever hell else the precursors had ready to drop on the planet. Worse, their tentacles started to spread out from the thick main drop, 
black and crackling purple and blue lightning shooting through the tendrils and into the thick black clouds that concealed the sky with the exception of the white oval cleared by the nuclear blast of someone's hellbore that the clouds were rolling back into. Heavy psionic power-infused rounds exploded against the battle screens on the port side and he rolled, dropping down to get under the fire, leveling out and then hauling back up on the stick, coming around in a loop that he rolled to get right side up. Ahead of the precursor vehicles, all bristled with guns that pointed skywards, he gritted his teeth and thumbed the rocker switch forward, opening up the cannons again. His three wingmates came in with him, raking the vehicles with the rapid-fire heavy cannons. Half of them exploded as the strikers whipped by at nearly 400 knots. Muxted slid sideways, dumping the inertia in the explosive burst behind him as he kicked the engines to shoot forward. The bought graviton engine was howling, and 973 was inside the housing, banging on the gravity pump to get it to set properly. Beside him, the searing hot metal bumping his armor, the two backup gravity pumps strained to meet up with the demands the Muxted was putting on them. The vehicles they had just hit had managed to get their anti-aircraft weapons in line with the projected line of escape that the computers and wired-in cerebral tissue had figured the strikers would follow, which meant that Muxted and his wingmen hit them from the side leaving behind little more than a scattered handful of anti-aircraft vehicles that weren't twisted and burning junks between the strafing guns. The door gunners and the striker in the back of the diamond formation dropped a cluster of daisy cutters as he raced by. The daisy cutters threw armor and mechanical fragments into the sky. Born on a red and black fist of the antimatter slurry, enhanced fuel-air thermobaric explosions. The explosions cracked out with blue and purple light as the energy released by the missiles hammering into the vessel fluoresced into X-rays visible onto the instruments of Admiral Thanos' flagship. The massive vessel heeled over on the side as the matter blown out of the hull acted as a reaction thruster that pushed it into the side as the explosive pulse lasted nearly an entire second. Status change, Commodore and Guac barked out, pointing at the display screen on the right side of the flag bridge. Space looked deformed, stretched, almost like it was bulging somehow. What is it? Admiral Thennis asked, putting her attention from the precursor fleet being hammered into scrap metal by her task force's guns. Unknown! Sensors are going crazy, man! Nguak said, I've never seen anything like this. Could it be the enemy? Thennis asked, gripping the armrests of a crash couch with her hands, ignoring the flare of pain from the aching knuckles. Unless they're putting another new trick out, I seriously doubt it, ma'am, and Quark said. Dennis was looking straight at the monitor when it happened. Space stretched, bulged, and suddenly tore, spraying out dark matter as if the space had suddenly become water and something was breached in the surface from the dark depths. The first ship that surfaced seemed to have a dark matter streaming off the hull like water. It's huge, bigger than the Leviathan-class warship but shaped more like a waterborne vessel than a normal space-going vessel. It had huge clusters of guns, the hull nearly 200 miles long and 75 miles wide, with 20 miles thick. The battle screens cracked into existence, so thick and strong that the thickness of the glimmery energy fields nearly obscured the vessel. Oh, the unliving beauty of the Queen of the Undying Black Fleet, roared out. Space started to seal close, but then it was forced open again by another hull ripping its way free of whatever the ship was forcing its way into the universe from. 
the unending wrath of Terrasol. The Missouri has arrived, roared out. Who the hell are these guys? Admiral Thennis snapped. ID coming in. Communication links established. They're broadcasting Confederate headers. All communication text only. Commodore and Quark said. Combined naval forces transponders. More and more ships were joining, most of them smaller than the two huge ones that had pushed through first. All of them looked strange, almost eye-aching. Some of them looked like status of contorted and tormented women made from black wall steel. The ships just hung there, several light seconds from the raging battle. She looked down at her console and saw a single communication. Oh, we have heard your call for succor, and the black feet of lost Terrasol has come to your aid. Upload fire plan. Ma'am, the flagship of incoming fleet is requesting a fire plan integration, and Quark said. Dennis didn't have to think. She knew the idiots were involved in the war, and they had combined codes. They were undoubtedly one of the idiot fleets somehow. Tie them in, she snarled as another shoal of missiles hit the battle screens and tried to reach through the X-ray and gamma-driven lasers. None got through, but the lights on the flag pitch flickered. From the new, twisted and strange ships, corrupted code streamed out, led by tortured and bloody VI warboys that snarled and snapped at their own binding code as they were hurtled into space. The precursors, who had slowly learned to add more than four-digit access codes to all their systems, looked at the oncoming code smugly. They had learned to resist it, to keep the war code from flooding their systems. They expected the complexity and unpredictable code of the rapidly aggressive virtual intelligences. What they got was the twisted obscene code of the Black fleet, the VI guided and enhanced by the cold-driven will of the operating minds of the ships, which were wielded like a scalpel by the Kantai captains of the dark ships. The code slammed into the ships, wormed through the slightest crack in the firewalls, exploited code vulnerabilities on even the psychic circuitry, and exploded into the computer systems. They raved, gibbered, grabbing speakers and displays to scream out and showcase their rage and torment and hatred. A dozen enemy ships exploded from the assault of the Dark Code. The captains ordered the ships to spin up code dancers of fury, their expressions remote and indifferent. The code dancers would hash, shape, suckle, and release the Dark Code furies upon the enemy so that the Kentai captains could concentrate on the enemy. There would be victory or death. One was inextricably linked to the other in a perfect dance, which meant either was fine. Ralvex pulled the autocannon to lead the heavy shuttle barreling into a slam into the ground outside the lines of the Confederate forces. The tracers lashed out, looking like they would miss by a handspan in front of the dropship only to connect with the heavily armored dropship when the arcing tracers intersected with the precursor craft. At the distance of a mile, the hits looked minuscule, pinprick yellow and red sparkles on the hull that gathered in frequency until the entire site suddenly exploded outwards, the dropship breaking in half and falling to the ground. Ralvex switched targets, going for a swollen tick-like vessel that was heading down towards the ground. The thrusters on the end of the eight spindly legs burning with a bright purple light. Give it, um, Rolvex snapped out. Stampy, help. 
We bowed to everyone in the circle. Atomic! 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 Flashed on the visors, a breath before the 80mm Halball fired, Stampy spinning his wheels to keep the space against the heavy recoil. His barrel was steaming as the snowflakes kept falling. The 125 kiloton blast hit the massive vessel incoming, a hole edged with a white-hot melting battle steel with only apparent damage for a split second before the midship area exploded. As the 125 kiloton blast liberated its energy deep inside the precursor machine that was the size of a small city, the blast wave reached out almost a mile, hammering on the precursor machines around the blast with a shockwave-driven atmosphere. Ralvik saw the order on his faceplate and took two steps back, swinging his weapon down, letting off the firing stud, but holding onto the firing grip to keep the barrels rotating so they'd cool. The massive precursor vehicle, a cousin to the one that had taken his arm and he had killed with his chainsaw at the very end, recoiling slightly as the autocannon shells began exploding across its face. The Talcon choir's voices uplifting, calming to Ralvix even as he snarled and kept the autocannon on target. Tiny Tim joined in, handing his twin linked guns to the fire, missiles still wet looking rolling into the launcher and firing immediately. The heavy autocannon found something and the precursor vehicle exploded, showering armor across the slushy battlefield. He switched to a new target. Twenty minutes and still the battle was under control. The gathered precursors stared at the psychic representation on the planet below. All twenty landing areas were heavily defended, much more heavier than previously. Despite repeated attacks, repeated landings, repeated campaigns, if anything, the enemy's strength grew rather than depleted. They reached out and interlinked with those who had the victory over the space-borne forces was tossed to. They found the minds disturbed, having difficulty maintaining control of their subordinate ships as bellowing ships of terrible form and power were entering the real space. From the cold dimension, that teleportation moved through on the opposite side of reality from the hyperplane scorched and the riven by the Great War. Both sets of commanders reached out into the conclave aboard the flagship, requesting assistance. The forces on the ground were tearing apart the landing forces, inflicting over 80% casualties on the landing forces. Even the greater ones were torn apart by nuclear weapons wielded directly atomic explosions that seemed to be somehow formed into the shape charge designed to defeat armor. The starships, the fleet that have fought for so many decades, did not have their strength lessened as they should have. The ships had slowly grown to nearly twice their original size, with a third again more weapons than they had started with. Now another fleet joined them. One that mixed cold analytical hatred with rage and furious wrath. The conclave, staggering from the psychic pulsing scream from the wormhole in the split second before it collapsed, was desperate. It ran the risk of losing in both space and on the planet. Without control of space, they could not adjust the stellar mass. And if they could not adjust the stellar mass, the stellar system would not serve as such a preferable launching point for the invasion on the sector. The species below, that fought so hard, so furiously, still had weaknesses. They were a space-faring species. All space-faring species had the same weakness. Only cooperative species achieved space flight. All others destroyed themselves. 
Warfare had to be relearned from the unification cycle all spacefaring species must have accomplished, an event that put an end to warfare. The Conclave reached out, down to the planet, out onto the starships. Their power was damaged without the support from beyond the wormhole, but they still had the power to reach out through the psychic threats of reality to the minds of the defending species. The Conclave reacted with startlement. Manted were on the planet, on board the ships, the servitor races of the Manted race. Things suddenly made sense. The other spots, not vaguely sleepy, that teemed with the planet and hundreds of minions, not the ones that tasted slightly of the Manted, as alike as two spheres crafted by two different masters, but the screaming, raging sparks. They were a new weapon of hated Manted. They made things even easier. The Conclave reached out, reached into the ever-rushing stream of the universe. They all linked their strength, linked their power, searching the rushing flow, reaching back. There, there it was, where the Mantid's new servitor race's history crossed with the event that the Precursors were looking for, what the Conclave searched for. It was closer to the surface of the universe than the Conclave had expected, but it was still very easy to reach. It was too strong, too ingrained to reach back and turn that back. But they could do something to the minds of those fighting them. The Conclave gathered its power, tapped the great crystals carefully grown, cut and carved to supplement their strength, and reached out, enduring the pain and ensuring their victory by touching the Mentit's new servants. Over half of them died, killed by the howling enraged madness of the Mentit's servants' minds. But they did it. They'd devolved the thoughts of Mentit's servants. Wound back their methods of thought, the structure of their brains, the greatest vulnerable point in a species history, to just prior to spaceflight. Ralvex realized something had changed when the firepower suddenly stopped around him. The precursors had landed and were pressing the attacks. Oh no, 525 said. No, 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 no. What? Ralvex started to say, psychic, 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 flashed on his visor and his mouth suddenly flooded with the taste of electric strawberries his teeth tingling. He looked around and frowned, still keeping his firepower on the precursors. The humans stopped stock still for a moment. The precursor machines pressed the attack. Crap! Ralvex grunted out. The conclave felt a sudden stillness in the enemy's mind and knew it was a brain not wired for war, not wired for violence, undoubtedly twisted by the mantid speakers and pushed into fighting by them. Reaching with a stock to the thunder of battle around them, the Conclave ordered both the land and space force commanders to press the attack. Brief, pre-space fight species, when confronted by violence, often shut down. Victory was certain. The Conclave knew this. The psychic attack rippled out, sliding through the pinholes in space-time back to the initial arrival of both Precursors and the Terrans. On the back of the neck of the Terrans were three green LED lights and burned beneath the skin. The psychic attack touched the Terrans. One of the LEDs went amber. End of chapter. Chapter 256, Essela. One of the interesting features of the Terran descent humanity is their apparent weakness. A cursory inspection of any interspecies relationship with the Terrans will show you that the species encounters them without fail always draws the wrong conclusions. 
Even those who study the history of humanity often draws the wrong conclusion due to something that all humans call confirmation bias. Or, uh, in more layman's terms, I prefer my own facts when examining humanity. The reason for this is galactic evolution. The great filters create what Terrans call one-trick ponies to get past the great filters, with only humanity as its exception. Every race who has achieved faster-than-light travel have managed to settle more than a dozen systems follow the same historical and cultural patterns. Cooperation, conformity, and what the humans sneeringly refer to as the greater good. Yes, yes, I see you students whose races subscribe to the greater good theory chafing in the back there. Calm yourselves. There are factions of humanity who subscribe to the greater good theories. But humanity as a whole does not. Too often in human history, the greater good has led to mass extinction, slaughter, and ultimately war. As what one group of humanity perceives as the greater good is seen by another group as totally without redeeming qualities in human horror, and those groups eventually clash. That is not to say humanity is perfect and the pinnacle of galactic races. They are just capable of cruelty spitefulness and pettiness as any other races. They just do it well. When it comes to temporal manipulation, the Terrans avoided the great temporal filter by realizing quite early on, when their work was still in the theoretical phases, that any change to the time stream inevitably resulted in the worst possible result for the manipulator. Eventually, before the first temporal lens was created to look back into the past and aid the existing superluminal travel modes, they discovered that, mathematically, the universe dislikes anyone meddling in the fourth dimension, as that is one of the primary overarching bedrocks upon which even the Big Bang rests. The Terrans proved with math and equations that the more you mess with the time stream, the more the universe seeks to ensure that you end up with the worst possible outcome and further attempts to change it will result in more less than optimal outcomes. With science and reason, they prove that the act of observing particle changes its state. Temporal mechanics means that the state of particles are changed by the act of observing them once they have been observed, changing them even further, which causes what the humans determine to be a sub-quantum paradox events which, uh, inevitably, lead to the worst conclusion possible. With that, let us discuss the Qatari temporal skirmishes. Turn or scroll your textbooks to page 328 and prepare your note-taking devices. Pre-glassing terror suffered from multiple genocidal purges of millions or even hundreds of millions of peoples. The most famous and ineffably marked as the Terran psych was the Qatari provincial realignment in which over 900 million humans were killed in a methodical industrial genocide in the course of two years. Temporal researchers attempted to stop the rise of the cult of the Iron Cow by traveling back in time, resulting in uh, excerpt from non-conventional warfare, failures and dangers, East Point Military Academy, Hamburger Kingdom, Xenospecies Academy Annex, third year requirement instruction for all cadets. Muxtet rolled, taking the missile hit on the compromised graviton belly band, then righted, feathered the port engine so the craft skewed to the right without changing momentum angle and cut loose with his 25mm cannons. 
The heavy rounds hammered into the infantry that had managed to crawl from the downed dropship. Twisted and warped flesh exploding as the rounds passed through the target to hit the ground and explode. He kicked the port engine back into full power, ignoring the screaming shudder of the overstressed drive, and swung back in line with his forward momentum. He was in the zone. He dropped down, his wingmates with him until the graviton eddies under his craft tore up dirt, mud, grass, and debris, spraying it behind him in a rooster tail his forward guns clearing the path for any enemy, his door gunners hammering Pontiac Vindicator hatred into the enemy as he passed. Some psionic-enhanced rounds punched through his forward battle screen and his wavering psychic shielding, slamming into the armor glass of the cockpit, shattering into the pilot's seat even as the last energy of the rounds exploded memory foam from the seat itself. 973, rotate out psychic shielding emitters, change the wavelength algorithm, they're getting through, he said, his voice calm, even though death had missed him by hitting the wrong seat. Roger, roger, gravity pump online. 973 sent back, turning and hurrying away from the port side graviton engine. He squeezed into the maintenance space even as the craft buzzed and hummed and vibrated around him. The psychic shielding had to be done manually to prevent outside forces from rotating the emitters. Psychic, psychic, psychic appeared on Muxtet's vision as he pulled back the stick, coming round in a looping, twisting turn that sent him onto the strafing run at 90-degree angle from his previous attack. 973, he started to say. His mouth filled the taste of electric blueberries and sizzling hamburger grease. His teeth all itched and tickled below the gum line. The Terrans in the back stopped firing for a long seconds. You guys all right back there? Muxtet asked. Another second passed. Yeah, yeah, we're fine, Sergeant Aurora said, his voice perfectly level and calm. Engaging targets, prioritizing light mechanized and infantry. Muxted frowned. Sixty seconds ago, both Terrans had been yelling as they fired their guns. The loss of the Terran emotional control had been a problem for the last two months. A problem that everyone had gotten used to. Engaging targets. Sergeant Kwaji said, his voice perfectly calm, prioritizing light mechanized and infantry units. He put it out of his mind as he saw the massive precursor vessel hit the ground, the side doors dropping down. He thumbed the rocker switch and the missile pods under each of the striker's stubby wings chafed out a pair of missiles, his neural link having already determined targets. The missiles' warboys howled with insane glee as they surged forward. Grab drives kicking in, and they spun up the small coil of madness and rage within their warheads. Only one of the missiles hit, coming in low and arcing up to detonate just over the clamshell doors. A loud thrum went off as even the purplish halo erupted with white spike of the missile that touched the ground and reached meters into the sky. Hundreds of creatures were revealed, many of them convulsing, firing weapons unwillingly as their synapses misfired. More than a few of the blue-lit globes suddenly splashed with ravaged neural tissue and going dark as their contained brains detonated. The rest of Foxtrot Liner Wing's Bravo psychic munition rockets hit and exploded, and the point defense systems shattered and the linkage burning in the spray psychic impulses even as the warboys howled with glee having jumped from the missile and into the phased radar array buffer of the massive dropship. 
The munitions didn't hurt the ground, but the precursor wall steel machines, forged in great psychic foundries, ignited and began to melt. The living tissue, both Heslin and other, was scorched, frayed, and rent. Come around, give it to them again, Buckstick growled. Engaging, one of the Terrans said, his voice almost flat at monotone. Buckstead didn't have time to worry about that as he swung around and arced up. Rolling his striker as the Immelman turn ended up with him diving back down to the deck as his wingmates went through the twisting reversals. Atomic! 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 Muxted was warned, his HUD telling him the burst would be three miles up and straight into the face of the city-sized craft. His systems let him know that he'd be able to handle the EMP pulse, his craft's shielding rated for the megawatts, but he still glanced to make sure that the mechanical systems were primed. Stampy, help! Stampy fired straight up, quivering with glee as the 80mm halball round sliced through the precursor landing forces lighter craft. Even though a half-dozen tried to interpose themselves between Stampy Shot and the massive precursor vessel that had necessary fab units and reinforcements, and a four-member battle squad. Aboard the ship, the group, referred to as squad, saw the oncoming nuclear round. The compressed and directed nuclear blast wrapped in a howling storm of electrons arranged into attack programs somehow brought up their psychic shielding. On the ground was absolute anarchy and howling fury. The conclave had reached back in time to gentle the new-mented server cast, but that didn't seem to have worked, which was impossible. The conclave were masters of tight space. The mantid servitors, labeled Species 23, should be incapable of an intellectual and emotional level of engaging in violence after thousands of years of cooperation to achieve space flight. Instead, there was something else. The squad yanked their attention from the carnage below as Stampy's shot raced upwards. They pushed more psychic power into the shielding, sneering at the pathetic nuclear shots from the ground. That was the moment when that jerk in orbit, trained by his mother to run the mass driver cannon, spotted the precursor dropship, figured, why not, and fired a 250mm round the size of a telephone pole rather than empty out the chamber since he was in the middle of switching ammunition types. He fired it, didn't bother run a targeting, just fired it by eye, then swung his systems around to bring his targeted computers to bear on the massive ship that had tried to hide behind the Hessler's moon. The squad realized that they were about to be hit by two rounds, either one they could handle, but both at the same time was too much, and reached down to the ground with their powers. They blinked out of existence from the ship, feeling the burning scrape of Hal's space touch them as they reappeared on the ground. Ralvex blinked as his autocannon hit something on the ground between the end of his barrel and the quartet of heavy precursor tanks. He reflexively dialed up the cyclic rate from 250 as the rounds hit, exploded and kept hitting something that fled purple. The Terran infantry gunner at Uralvix's right saw the explosions out the corner of his eye, turned and joined his fire to Ralvix's. Priority targets, follow my traces, all available crew served weapons in Quadrant 9, the Terran yelled. Ralvix noted his voice was cold, remote, missing the rage and the uncontrolled motions of the last two months, but not the same disassociated professionalism of when he had been trained as if the kidding and howling battle around him was nothing to be concerned about, just something to be 
dealt with. It was something else, something that made the fur in his spine stand up. His retinal link kept warning him that the red-level psychic threat that had top bar in purple maxed out, and 5 to 5 had his psychic screens cranked up so far that his eye sockets tingled and he could taste the smell of strawberries even though he'd never tasted them before. The squad devoted more of their mental energies to strengthening their combined personal shielding as another heavy weapon than another, and still another joined the first in pounding at their psychically generated shielding. The rounds were wall steel jacketed, forged in rage and fury, and the squad felt cold, logical outrage that another race would dare use their own weapons against them and abuse it with such a primal and primitive emotions instead of cold logic of their own wall steel. They, as one, split their minds, creating another consciousness within their own minds that could be absorbed later. But right now, was needed to keep the shielding up as yet another heavy weapon joined in firing on them. They reached out when carefully honed and trained senses, feeding the temporal stream, and attempted to reach back to rewind the battle to resolve all their forces while leaving the enemy ragged and harried for the ongoing fight, only to find the temporal stream was being threaded, meted, somehow protected from any influence except for the natural flow of the fourth dimension. They recoiled from something that should not be. They, the squad, were the masters of the fourth dimension. Only they possessed the will and knowledge to not only sense it, but understand it and manipulate it. But the evidence was undeniable. There were multiple devices maintaining the temporal stream. Worse, there were thousands of temporal lock sources on the planet. A part of their brains were devoted to nothing more than temporal perception, an entire region of the prefrontal cortex. Worse, there was a second region of their brains that could alter the perception of time, and a third that tracked the fine detail time. The squad reeled back from the coldly burning fire of those minds, that at each touch gave a knee-jerk atomic response of, Don't touch me! That roared back along the attempted psychic linkages. One of the four being squad noted that every time they touched one of these minds, those minds that the conclave had altered to their pre-space light states in brain function and tissue structure all had a cold, burning fury that seemed to know they had been touched. That being reached out and touched one. Don't touch me! Rolled back from Star Sergeant to Zindui's subconscious and into the conscious brain, and he glanced quickly to the side, where he felt the cold, slimy touch on his mind came from. There were four of the purple creatures, clad in iridescent robes, using focused psychic energies to keep back the hammering guns of no less than six crew-served weapons. SSG Zindui smashed his biomechanical beetle with a Christ-steel globe for a head out of his way, then kicked it onto his back before dumping a burst from his heavy magak rifle into the suddenly revealed underbelly. Purple goo and chunks of flesh showered him as he turned, his visor static charge snapping and clearing the glue from the visor. He shifted his hand, adjusting his aim for 300 meters shot, and thumbed the firing stud. The squad kept up the psychic energy needed to maintain the shielding as yet another weapon joined the lashing at the shield, 
wasteful amounts of antimatter. Whilst your burning chemicals, enhanced phosphorus, and massive kinetic energy kept them from being able to shift any energy to attack. They combined their will, reached down into the reserves and pushed outwards, forcing their shielding almost a meter away so the ever-encroaching blasts were no longer happening to add feeding tentacle from their faces. A 40mm grenade dropped down from the sky and between the four and hit the ground. Inside the psychic shields filled with bouncing fragments of battle steel stretched into a wire, wound around the explosive charge and cut it to notches. Thermite enhanced with white phosphorus joint, bouncing around with the shrapnel until it found a home in the purple flesh. All four of the squad screamed the psychic wavelengths. The agony made them drop their shields. And six 20mm autocannons obliterated them from the face of the planet. Admiral Thanos stared at the planet below, the planet that she had been defending for decades, back and forth, forwards and backwards, reliving the same battle over and over without her ships or her men restored as the enemy was, without the ships and the men refreshed as time had well back. She could see, even from orbit, the flashes of atomic weapons, the glowing nimbus around the bolos as they went to war with every bit of firepower against an enemy who was landing in strength for three hundredths time. Admiral Thanos pulled her attention away from the display of the planet, watching the great black ships join the fight. She glanced down at the communications display next to her own worn and tattered crash crouch. Bismarck, coming to 902, I-16, reference to stellar plane, firing main battery 3. Blor, all carriers launch mayflies, Junsu and thunder punch combinations. TF Midway, concentrate guns on enemy carriers. Boohoo, go to silent money, get behind the enemy. TF North Sea, move to engage the enemy's heavy warships. TF Overload, prepare your marines for boarding action. Hood. We are the defiant ones, we are the undying ones, victory or death, Yamoto, either is fine. Thanos shook her head, the text went by so fast that it was difficult to keep up. The Black Fleet, she'd heard of it, everyone had. It was rumors and conjecture, and most naval officers didn't really believe it actually existed. Now... It was here, engaged in battle against enemies of Terrasol, its reality-warping weapons belching out fire and rounds the size of cattle, their forms twisted and terrible, the captains undying and bound to their ships by chains of blood and fury. Thanos knew of the legends. It would not leave without adding a captain to the deck of one of the undying warships. She felt a chill and glanced at her son. The product of a torrid decades-long affair with the shipboard's marine enlisted men had feared, in the silence for her own soul, that the Black Fleet was there for her. More text appeared and Thanos gave the order for the Task Force Tiamat to break action and fall back, put some distance between themselves and the enemy. On her screens, the orders burned with a cold, violet light. Glor, Bismarck, Marat, Missouri, move forward and allow Task Force Tiamat to break action and de-slush, cool and reload. Bologna turned and stared at the ship that kept trying to hide in the shadows of other ships, in the shadows of debris. 
she could sense the pulsing psychic tendrils from that ship linking the enemy fleet together, attempting to reach beyond the battle to elsewhere. Oh, time to hell space arrival, she asked, her voice clear and pure in the absolute vacuum of her command deck. First arrivals in eight minutes, Captain, the Glow's operating mind informed her, the voice crisp and sure in the vacuum. Transmit to Task Force Diamond, we have incoming reinforcements. Inform Planet Side that they have relief coming, she ordered. Glow to Admiral Thennis commanding, eight minutes until reinforcements in strength. Glow to all Planet Side elements, eight minutes until reinforcements. The message flashed on Ralvix's visor as he lashed at the precursor tank with his heavy cannon, blowing apart battle steel treads and running gear. Stampy, help! The robot squealed as the battlefield tactical network informed him that there should be five-second gap where the main gunshot would not endanger any friendly forces or interrupt their attacks. The 80mm hull bore detonated in the second ranks of the tanks, the 125 kiloton blast shattering battle steel. Muxtet's instruments sparked as the EMP washed over his striker. The fireball bloomed, reached towards him, then he was inside of it. His instruments seeking out the enemy vehicles that had survived, running off the power source detection only. He could feel the pull of the superheated air cooling and pulling back from the mushroom cloud, feel the suction on his striker. His two door gunners kept firing, the fireball kept at bay by the battle screens even as it faded to a debris cloud. Muxted's striker whipped through the mushroom cloud, his three wingmates right behind him, going low against the banking to come around and strafe the other side of the battlefield. Peony was asleep on the floor, tired out from her attempts to walk. Her face was smeared with bitter cookie and slobber mixed together, and her little feet kept tickling. True and Ela were reaching their data slice and Ambry watched. She heard the rumble of the battle off in the distance and glanced at Mr. Mew Mew. Mr. Mew Mew didn't do anything more than keep showing a little zzz on his space screen, so Danbury took another drink of a fizzy brew and went back to reading. She knew, someday, that those noises would stop. Danbury glanced at the end of the table where she'd set the pistol, then over to Nee to make sure that they weren't entertaining one another. Satisfied her half-feral sister was still asleep, she went back to sipping on a fizzy brew and reading. It was fascinating stuff that Mr. Mew Mew had gotten from whoever Mr. Daisy was a few days ago, when there had been earth trembles for nearly two hours. Manted free worlds. Something feels weird. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. How so, sis? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. It's nothing I can put my fingers on, it's just... Something feels off. Nothing follows. Trianidad Highballs, yeah. Same here. There's something weird going on. Nothing follows. Tolkien Forge Worlds. It felt like someone was touching my brain for a moment, but it went away. Nothing follows. Tenvara people. I didn't feel anything. Nothing follows. Akultak Soaring Worlds. Me neither. Nothing follows. Rygelian Syrian Compact. I didn't either. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Maybe it's nothing? Nothing follows. End of chapter. Chapter 257. Nessler.
Screams at Texet was working on Terran's brain, but it happened. She had just removed the last of the bone shrapnel and repaired the tiny capillaries when the human neural tissue, which felt like firm jelly at the best of times, suddenly seemed to soften. Oh, stop! Screams snapped. The robotic surgical assistant lifted its arms, even as her assistants moved back. As she watched the furrows and ridges suddenly squirming, realigned, and changed, on a display, the dendrite patterns changed, impulse trails shifted, and the brain itself altered. Screams frowned as she stared at the suddenly altered neural tissue of the Terran descent human on her operating table. The differences were subtle, but there. Alarm started wailing and her cybernetic implant and provided psychic shielding against injured and enraged Terrans cranked up so hard that sparks jumped from her antennae. Two of the nurses fainted and the greenie in charge of making sure the surgical equipment worked at optimum efficiency collapsed in a faint. Warning! 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 Psychic levels detected! Warning! 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 Flashed on a retinal link. Two-thirds of the screens and over a hollow display of the Terran's brain's activity. Oh, no. Screams breathed. She recognized those patterns. It was the first time she'd ever seen them in real life, but she'd recognize them anyway. From the lectures on Terran neural evolution, Screams turned and lunged, slapped the button on the psychic suppression field. The Terran on the surgical table opened his eyes as Screams turned around. He looked around. His eyes glowed a dull red, that burned predator gaze settled on screams, and the three-foot-tall russet-colored praying mantis went perfectly still as her brain reacted to the presence of a superior predator. Am I gonna be okay, Doc? The Terran asked, his voice calm and level. Screams made a human nod. I'm finishing up now, she said. Oh, I brought you out from under the anesthetic beam to check on any defects, she lied. All right, the Terran said. He sighed. I'm grateful for your assistance. The voice was calm, even as if discussing the weather, not speaking about the fact that the top of his skull was open and there were still medical probes and instruments lodged in his brain. Screams moved around behind him and activated the hollow. Can you see that? Yes. She thought the picture of two Talcon podlings playing in the grass on the sunny park. What is this? Talcon children playing on a sunny day. She thought up Black Borg Borg. This Confederate Army Infantrymen, 16th Infantry Division by the Patches, Red Sky, Sand, and Margite Invasion. Good, good. This an apple on a lace tablecloth. Solve uh, this equation. N equals B squared over R, he said. Graviton particle movement equation. She was watching his emotional tracker as he went through the questions. The jumping line moved with intolerances for a Terran and calm rest, even as she went through all the images and found no mental defects. Terran emotions were tough to baseline anyway. You're fine, soldier, Screams said, watching as the two nurses and the tech were carried out and new beings came in to replace them. I'm going to keep you awake while I finish up. All right, ma'am. The voice said, cold and steady. It wasn't like she had a choice. The anesthetic beam was having trouble finding what to suppress to put the big Terran infantryman back under. She worked quickly, receding the brain's protective membrane, adding synthetic cerebrospinal fluid to bring the pressure up and correct levels. 
then placing the top of the skull and using the nanites to relink the capillaries and nerves. She put the skin flap back and used the nanites to reseal it. How long until... Uh, the Terran started to ask. At least 42 hours, Screams told him. The enemy is using psychic warfare and you just had a neurosurgery. Oh, again, perfectly calm. As if Screams had simply told him that dawn was eight hours away. None of that, let me go, I can fight. Struggling that had been there for only an hour ago. The Terran had been mumbling to let him up and go a height until right before, uh, whatever happened. She motioned for her nurse to move him into recovery and then signaled to wait before bringing in the next patient. Adriana Dad, who had taken the armor breached on the abdomen. He was stable for the moment she needed. She didn't store the data and wipe the instruments, instead leaving it live. She moved over and activated the holographic keyboard. She ran a search on the medical database that came up empty. She checked the data links and saw the Bolo Daisy was in communications. Bolo Daisy, this is Major Screams at Taxit. Do you read? Over. Daisy responded almost instantly, and Screams asked the massive super tank to check the data stalls for what she needed. Every Bolo carried volumes of information, everything from historical data to medical data to music and literature. Daisy transmitted the data and broke the linkage, the combined brains of Captain Thurgood and the Bolo's robotic brain busy with stopping the landing in the force of the enemy. Screams checked the data, comparing it, until she got a baseline match. Her implosion wire went cold and dead, ice from her brainstorm all the way down to the end of her abdomen, even her legs, arms, and blade arms feeling cold inside as she stared at the match. There was no doubt, it was as much of a match as to be expected when comparing two different people's brains. Structurally and performance-wise, they were exactly the same. Her blade arms trembled and she cleaned her antennae nervously as she ran the comparisons. She knew several dark secrets, secrets that whispered and murmured to themselves in the darkness of history and the Terran soul. As a neurosurgeon, especially a battlefield trauma neurosurgeon, she had need to know of those secrets, that the Terrans had altered themselves in ways that they did not admit, that they had changed neural functions, altered synaptic paths, changed dendrite chains. She knew better than anyone with her highly specialized skill set that it had been done for necessity, that it had been performed to not only save humanity, but to save the universe itself. Psychic potential so strong it suppresses the psychic potential of those around it, she thought to herself. An open mind is like a fortress with its gates unbarred, bubbled up in her mind. Blessed be the mind too small for doubt. She shivered reflexively at those cold, burning, hateful words. We did it to them. The monkey was happily playing in the jungle, excited with its new toys, its new vistas, its new friends, and we ran up and smashed it across the back of the head with a club and stuck our blade arms at its brains. She thought to herself as she stared at the holograms. When it was over, when most races would have felt there was no going back, they locked the door and walked away. She shuddered again. The digital omnibusire protect us all from what someone has done, she thought to herself, staring at the highly active portions of the cerebral tissue on the holograms. Where normally it was coldly dormant, almost vestigial, 
Now it burned with a cold, sullen fire as synapses fired within tissue unused for thousands of years of evolution, manipulation, and suppression. Screams shuddered as she remembered the dull red of the Terran's holy biological eyes. The last thing so many of her race's upper caste ever saw. The last thing some entire species had ever seen. Muxtet raced across the sky, hitting the afterburners and getting up higher when the air was cold. The 80mm Halbor shot fired from the ground and heated up the air around the battlefield, and he was having problems dumping heat as fast as he was generating it. His creation engines were at 85% slash and rising, 82% heat and rising. His armor was pebbled and cracked, and his port graviton engine had picked up an ugly harmonic. Foxtrot 9-2, disengaging. He radioed back, the channel full of static from the atomic hammers pounding the planet across the entire globe. Heat and slush levels critical, severe armor and systems damage. Alpha Wing, disengaging. Roger that, right planning coming, over. The radio crackled back. Muxtet could believe it. In an age of quantum communication, laser and microwave communication, digital communication, they were reduced to electromagnetic bandwidth with the interlocked battle tactical neck operating on something the communications technicians called the six-meter band that used ionosphere bouncing somehow. It took almost 15 seconds for the battle plan to load into his system, and even then, it was just a series of coordinates and a single symbol flight instructions that made him raise his eyebrows. The Hesselin people were hunkered down in old Lanark-to-Land pressure craft airport, a handful of tanks from the 367th providing protection as they were broadcasting their willingness to check. Right plan received, Foxtrot 9-2, out, Muxtet said. Need nitrogen slash, 973 told him. Tanks empty, air scoop is damaged, can't fix air scoop without nitrogen slash, can't gather nitrogen slash without air scoop if tank is empty. Did you get the tanks fixed? Muxtet asked. Main tank still under repair, Orcs tanks 3 and 5 are repaired. Orcs tanks 1 and 4 are just gone. Orcs tanks 2 and under repair, 973 reported. Graviton pump on port engine has organic superlubricant harmonic, needs flushed. Muxtet nodded, knowing his helmet would relay the motion. Alright, hang tough, we're going to a friendly base. Roger, roger, 973 said turning his attention back to the loading mechanism on the starboard 25mm cannon. Behind the quartet of damaged strikers, another Halbor blast lit up the sky. The clouds rushed back in as soon as the overpressure was collapsed. Stampy heart, the little robot reported, sending out an emoji of a panting canine. Go to small arms only, Ralbex ordered as he knelt in the mud, his gun cooling. Adriana Dad was pulling off his overheated and depleted amber pack off his back. A half dozen of them on the Triana Dad's combat power frame. The Triana Dad slapped Ralvix on the top of the head. Clear! Ralvix stood up, squeezing the grip and started the barrels of his gun to spin. He had to replace the autocannon when a round hit the base of the receiver, shattering the buffer, tube, and the drive rod. Luckily, the troops of the 15th Sustainment Battalion were striding through the battlefield in their power-assist harnesses like there wasn't a war going on, and he'd been handed a new weapon as soon as he dropped his damaged one and gone to his Magak rifle. 
Looking over the scene in front of him, he churned up a piece of stim gun and locked himself back into a battlefield tactical network. It was moving with cold precision, although Ralvix had noticed there were differences from when he had been trained. It was little stuff. He couldn't explain it. But it was little things like the fact that instead of detailing the minute details with what each unit would do, almost to an ammunition expenditure, the orders consisted of such vague concepts as hold that position and advance into enemy and attack left flank. No precise orders with details, just an expectation that it was done without the concern of how it was done. At the beginning, his orders read, Engage armored units of the 150 ton or less with primary weapons unless breaking charge. Support unit Alpha fire is capable. Support unit Brother engage sub-infantry by drones. And that was it. Now it was, Engage enemy at will. Purple targets are priority. That was it. Ralvix just started chewing the gum as he brought out the hymns of the Blessed Podling, a pure clear voices of the Talcon choir singers filling his ears as he leveled the dual-barreled rotary autocannon and thumbed the rocket switch. Armor-piercing high-explosive massive reactive antimatter incendiary rounds lashed out as he raked in front of the tank and tore huge chunks of its forward armor off as an entire front dissolved into a fire and fury as he tossed 250 rounds a minute into the tank. In less than three seconds, his rounds got to the eternal spaces, and a coppola blew off the purple flesh. Ralvex switched his aim to the larger tank, lashing the Christeel domes, imploding them and extinguishing the blue light. I consign thy souls to the arms of the digital Omni-Messiah, whose mercy I bring to you in this terrible fashion, Ralvex thought as the hymn soared in his ears. Dwell within the light and warmth and love, for I free you of this horrible torture with paradoxical wrath that I wield to bring about mercy. He hammered through the flank armor of the massive tank, the 25mm shells blowing away chunks of armor, ablating away more and more of the battle steel until it hit wall steel liner in the organics compartment. Something died with a purple flare and Ralvik switched targets even as the tiny Tim deployed prism and ferromasking smoke, his own suit allowing him to see through it. The Talcon children of the choir, old enough to be named but still immature, sang glory and sweetness in his ears as he fought. Admiral Thennis wiped the cold sweat from her brow as she watched the enemy shift formation, trying to get out from under the guns of the terrible black ships that even Admiral Thennis's crews worked to bring the ships back into fighting condition. Decades of practice smoothing and speeding the effort. It was nothing that some of them had not been born into. One of the bigger ones that had taken repeated hits until this black metal had begun to break away to reveal battle steel inside, surged ahead, driving forward, its guns thundering and warping space, interposing itself between the enemy and the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, the former heavy frigate slash troopship now the size of a battleship after decades of upgrades, additions, and refits. Oswald had taken a brace of NCV shells amidship and was struggling to stay in formation. You shall not fail, little sister. The massive ship roared out, audible, as if vacuum could carry sound. Bismarck, my hull is the bulwark against the enemy guns, sister, scrolled across the text repeater. 
The enemy had managed to open up two more wormholes, ships streaming into the fight through the wormhole, each wave successively larger. The third wave was leaving the wormholes, nine ships in this wave. The timer hit zero. Status change, Commodore and Quark called out. Admiral Thinnis turned her attention to the display screen, swallowed down the acid reflux, gripping her armrests of her crash couch tightly with aching hands. The memory foam long ago pressed into shape. Warning! Hellspace breach detected. Warning! Many, many point sources, Commodore and Quark sang out. Drive emissions consistent with Dark Crusade. It's reinforcements, ma'am. Signal coming in from the new contact's flagship, Commander Saventa. Oh, Commander Saventa's daughter, who is almost 30, called out. On screen, Admiral Thena snapped. The woman, who had been trained since a young age to take her mother's place, nodded and tossed it to the Admiral's main display. Thennis jerked back the acid reflux searching as the horror show appeared on her screen. Jet black wall steel festooned with barbed chains, the helmet a bond to reveal a heavy-featured severe face attached to a wall steel skull, fed by worm-like tubes that infused the skull with dark life. I am... Osiris, commander of the Abithka, lord of the Dark Crusade, the figure said, the face twisting as the skull spoke. You are Admiral Thennis, Task Force Tiamat, commanding. Thennis nodded, swallowing down the stomach acid. I am. Are you in need of assistance? The flesh adorned the black wall steel skull, added. We are, Thennis said, her mind boggling at the fact that the being on her display would be going through formality like that at a time like this. And the dark crusade of light shall assist. We shall interlock with your war plans. Osiris out, the skull said, then vanished. Ma'am, war plan transmission from new forces, Ensign Talamava called out. She called audibly, they have ground troops and want coordination for ground troop landing as well as dozens of ships. Well, there's hundreds of targets out here and one the planet, Thetis said, swallowing. She rubbed her forearms and shivered. Get those men on the ground some backup and let's finish the fight up here. She turned to Lieutenant J.G. Greedy. Status on Sucker Punch 2 and 3. Half hour per fab up, two hours to deploy, he called back. That gave the enemy 150 minutes to keep sending ships. The current rate at another wave every minute where it would give them 150 waves until Sucker Punch would collapse the wormholes. Stay on it, she ordered. She looked at the screen and watched as the newcomer ships took up positions, locked into the formations, and went to work. Some stayed off, firing heavy guns, but a handful swept directly towards the largest of the enemy ships. C-plus cannons thundering out as they closed in order to board the enemy ships. Muxted cursed as he swept around the side, skating the striker at the sharp angle that has moved at a 90-degree angle to its facing. He triggered the guns, feeding the airframe shudder. In the few minutes since he had made for the makeshift rearming base, a precursor vessel the size of a stadium had managed to land nearby and vomited up attackers. His guns shredded apart precursor machines into scrap metal, 
A small part of him noted that all the Christeel clothes were dark on the newcomers, and he suddenly understood why they were fighting so hard to get into the makeshift airbase. The tanks of the 367th used the lull that Muxted brought them to get into position, opening up with the guns as Muxted goosed the striker and sent it shooting across the ground, firing at the targets less than a hundred feet below him. Missiles sent fountains of mugs and grass into the air, blew apart burnt wreckage from the initial attack and tore apart the precursor machines. Despite the massive firepower of a score of tanks and muckstead strikers, a dozen rushed forward for every one killed, even more enemies streaming out of the bulk of the precursor landing craft. All of the telltales were red. He couldn't fab up any more missiles, no more cannon rounds, and even the door gunner's weapons were red-lined. He'd taken a bad hit in the aft section and lost his mainline graviton engine, only the howling starboard of the port engines keeping him in the air. Muxdet to 367, we gotta land. We're spilling slush and burning hot, over. Muxdet transmitted. This is Utini, get in here. We'll hold them off. We'll be going atomic, one of the tank commanders answered. Roger that, out, Muxdet said, breaking hard. The airframe shuddered as the graviton engines vibrated. He leveled out, came in a low, eyed makeshift walls around the former luxury airstrip. He could see how the concourse had been pulled apart to make the walls, see where the traffic control tower had been blown up and was still burning, but on the ground he could see heavy tanker trucks. On the walls he could see small furry people firing heavy guns. Two tanks had their back decks opened up and he could see the strange reddish fury of the heavy creation engines working. There was a Hesselton down there, waving brightly colored flags to guide him down. The striker sat down with a bump, the forward landing gear creaking. The Hesselton tapped on his window and he looked at the male Hesselton through the cracked and pitted armor glass, shaking his head. They're saying you can keep it running, they'll resupply us, one of the turrets said. Muxted jerked slightly. He'd almost forgotten he'd been running with an open troop bay doors and door gunners. They can't hold, Muxted said, watching as the pair of small female Hesselton carried boxes of ammunition to the wall, running from the back of the tank where the group of other Hesselton were passing down boxes to the waiting Hesselton. He considered for a second and made a decision. Striker, Foxtrot 9 or 2, was out of the fight. Dismount the guns, get on the walls, men, he ordered, slapping the harness buckle. He opened a channel. I'm out of the fight. Boxtrot 9 is 16. Take over Wing Alpha. Roger that, Private Mulprit answered. I'm coming with you, men, Muxted said. Roger, sir, both Terrans replied at once. Muxted grabbed his pilot's SMG and headed out the back, both for the infantrymen and the pulled the psionic vindicators out of the mounts, both throwing the ammo belts over their shoulders to keep the line clear to the ammo packs that they'd struggled into. Let's go, men, he said jumping down. It was obvious where the enemy was. It was the wall all the firing was happening on. He ran for the wall, climbing the ladder where the Terrans just jumped to the top of the wall. The tanks had gone to rapid fire on their guns, pouring shots into the landing craft's battle screens, even as their auxiliary guns hammered the precursor's infantry that swarmed forward, slowly gaining ground over the corpses of their brothers. Muxted knew. 
Even as both of his Terran door gunners cut loose with his miniguns, that all too soon that they'd be in range of his own SMG. Smiley face, since what Takashi Kawai desu there? Smiley face rang out over the battlefield. Many Hestler winced. Some cried out, but all of them kept firing. There was a burning tingle across the top of his ears, down his spine, and under his toenails. He heard a strange sound behind him, almost like bubbles of soft drink fizzing, only louder, sharper, more metallic. He turned and looked at the words rang out again, not making sense. Mighty face Tikinochi o Kobashati and Naki o Ubawa no Watas Nashi Kawai Desune. Smiley face roared out somehow the emojis understandable through the high pitched roar. Muxted stared at what he saw appear in the middle of the tarmac. Row upon row of upraised pink and white chainsaws held by heavily armored figures with banners held aloft from their backs and burning torches in their shoulders. Rawr! erupted from a hundred catgirl throats in the lust-filled screech. Then of chapter. Chapter 258. Historical Archive. It was an unusual sight, but then it was an unusual time. Heavy combat starships hung in deep space, the nearest star nearly 15 light years away. A sea of dark matter extending full light years in every direction. A handful of cargo ships were orienting and jumping into hyperspace, the limited VI aboard them having loaded and executed the astrogation instructions that would drop them into the heart of a white dwarf nearly a hundred light years away. After a few minutes of combat, starships joined them, the crewless, non-sentient automated warships executing instructions that left them little more than extra mass to the star. One ship remained behind. A small ship, a crew of a hundred at maximum. The ship was war steel hulled, lightly armed, more involved in stealth and remaining unremarkable than fighting its way into or out of situations. None of that, while strange and somewhat odd, was unusual enough to be remarked upon during such an unusual time. It was what the ship was next to. A shuttle bay door open, a single missing shuttle was obvious as a missing tooth in the beauty queen's smile. It looked like a slab of jet black, nearly six kilometers long, a half kilometer thick and a kilometer wide. There was a single opening, a little landing bay with a single shuttle inside. Ancient ruins of danger and warnings of doom from more than one score of species were engraved in the glowing metals that would take tens of millions of years of radioactive decay to render dark. It was ominous, foreboding, just as the designers intended. The sight of it invoked fear at a primal level, which was only a reasonable response to what it was. A black box. Inside was nearly silent, almost completely still. Two living beings moved around, anyone else was still as a grave. The majority of the corridors were only dimly lit by long life pin lights with burn times measured in the tens of thousands of years. Black mist and pale grey vapor swirled in the hallways, sometimes coming up to knee level. The systems built massive, multiple redundancies built to function for eons rather than months. Each system pared down until there was nothing left to remove for each system to do their job. 
No multitasking, no multiple operations per systems, just dedicated systems for important jobs. The two living beings were both alike in many ways, but far different in other ways as they watched the robot load and move the cryopod into position. One was massive, metal implants embedded in flesh and bone in crude and cruel ways. One eye was cybernetic, cold war steel around a single lens. Memory metal, muscle enhancements visible on the neck and one side of the jaw. His close cropped hair was salt and pepper, his remaining eye brown as his skin. And he had tattoos on his cheek with his last name, Briscoe, his system identification barcode, his rep, and his old unit. He looked exactly as he was, someone that was scrapped up by the snow shovel and crudely put back together. The other was shorter, thinner, and obviously younger. Without tattoos, without the bulky cybernetics, Instead, a simple, advanced data link with a smooth look of a late-generation design. His cyber eyes were almost indistinguishable from a real eye, just a slight iridescent of a high and cyber optics. The only mark on his clothing was a lodman, one breast in the Imperium Eagle on the shoulder. Both wore clean suits, both were bearing tanked air as the interior of the massive facility was little more than non-corrosive noble gases that would be pumped out the moment that they leave and everything in near vacuum. The robot sat down the cryopod and slid it forward so the top locked into the wall, two feet of machinery slotting into the machinery designed to facilitate this purpose. The cryopod was covered with a thin layer of frost and obscured, but did not completely hide the occupant. A teenage Terran girl who was beautiful, even in sleep. Her large blue eyes were closed, the long lashes touching her cheeks. Her blonde hair was pulled into a tight braid and wound under the cryosleep cap. But the cap in the middle of her bangs that looked like a heart was still obvious. Her arms and legs were longer than normal, somehow making her aesthetically pleasing instead of freakish. She had a button nose and a cupid's bow mouth, a flawless complexion, and even in sleep she looked as if she were full of joy. She was inhuman in her perfection. The larger figure turned and touched the wall, raised a panel. Inside was a clear armor glass panel that showed what was beyond held in a glass frame. Jewelry, clothing, shoes... He checked the inventory list and scrolled by with a cold amber light to the contents and its archaic clipboard, checking off each item with an actual writing implement instead of a stylus. Her inventory's clear, the large finger rumbled, touching the panel and letting it slide shut again. If any being but the cleared authorized tech using the large figure's handprint or occupant of the cryopod tried to open the panel, it would slag the contents. How long will she sleep? The smaller one asked, bending forward slightly to look at the occupant of the cryopod. If this is indeed a just universe, then forever. The larger one said, he tapped the top of the cryopod, bringing up the displays and the armor glass itself. He began going down the checklist, taking notes or filling in checkboxes as he went. Why? Why not try reintegrate them into society? The smaller one asked, That's impossible. The larger one said, His voice was gruff. You were, the smaller one accused. I'm just an assault marine. The larger one said, She's uh, 
More. More than she should have been. There was a silence until the larger one finished the checklist and wiped away the data, the armor glass going dark again. All right, let's go, the larger one said. He reached out and touched the armor glass over the woman's face. May the Omni Messiah walk with you, sister. Thank you. He turned and walked away, the smaller one following. As soon as they left the room, the door steeled shut and the atmosphere pumped out and then replaced with inert gas, and the lights went off. Only a single light above the sleeping young girl's head provided any light. The pair slowly moved through the hallways, the facility shutting down behind them with each closed door. Finally, they boarded the shuttle and buckled in. The younger one was practically trembling with the urge to ask questions as the larger one piloted the shuttle across the gulf and into the landing bay of the sole remaining ship. He followed the larger one to the bridge where the larger one settled into a comfortable chair with an armored back and five-point harness. Only a few words were exchanged before the scene changed. The dark matter around the object coalesced, thickening until it looked like a space had become a kind of clear gelatin around the obelisk. The gel darkened and the obelisk appeared to sink into the space in a way that made the eyes ache, until it vanished into the small bubble of space that had not properly formed with the rest of the universe. The dark matter spread out again, slowly, eventually becoming unmarred. It's done, the captain said. He sighed, the sound of a bone-weary exhaustion. Take us out a few light years and let's jump for home. The ship went to grab folding drive, compressing space in front of it, crossing space at nearly 60 times the speed of light, heading for a random point away from where the obelisk had vanished. The man was known to most on the ship as Brasel. A former Terran Imperial Assault Marine, his youth as an engineer had placed him on the ship as sure as combat record had seen him dropped on a hundred worlds. But the war was over, which was why he was sitting in the cantina of an unnamed ship, eating yogurt, lost in his own thoughts when Dr. Ludeman sat down across from him. Brazel managed to keep from sighing. He knew the younger man had questions. He had merely been there as he was an expert in the long obsolete cryotech that had been used inside the obelisk. He mentally started counting down. Why store them like that? Ludman asked before Priscilla's internal countdown had reached single digits. What would you have us do with them? Priscilla asked, setting his spoon down next to his yogurt. Surely there had to be a better choice than putting them into cryosteep for eternity. Ludman said, more of a statement than a question. What would you suggest? Brissell repeated. Ludman was silent for a moment, long enough for Brissell to eat two more spoonfuls of his yogurt. He was almost done when the unflavored part, almost down to the thick fruit jelly at the bottom. You were supposed to mix it together, most people did, but Brissell liked to eat the unflavored first and enjoy the fruit filling. Reintegration. Ludman said. You benefited from it. Brazil just shrugged, a faint sound of cybernetic slough and nearly empty container. I'm just a marine, easy enough to downgrade me to a normal person and put me into retraining. There should be a place for them, Ludman said, just like there's a place for you. Brazil shook his head. We're nothing alike. I'm just a man, enhanced, but at my core, just a man. 
And those are little girls, Ludman said, leaning back slightly and folding his arms. Brazil sighed, no, they look like little girls. Their features are supposed to make you feel protective of them, are designed to make you care about them and like them. They aren't little girls any more than I'm a pure uplift chump. Then remove their powers from them and let them reintegrate, Lippman tried. That made Brissell laugh, a loud booming sound that echoed off the black walls. Remove their powers, like you can just remove the Magak rifle from my forearm and hocus cadabra, I'm harmless. Ludman nodded. Yes, you're making a mistake there, Ludman, Brissell said. Dr. Ludman, the smaller man said. Lieutenant Colonel Jakite Brissell, Doctor of Engineering, then Dr. Ludman, Brissell said letting the smaller man know he wouldn't be intimidated by a degree. Lumen pursed his lips in distaste, then shook his head. Fine, what mistake am I making? You're equating removing a weapon from my forearm with trying to remove a weapon from the weapon itself, Brissell said. I told you when you first saw them, I've kept telling you, they aren't little girls. They look like them, Lutman said. They're weapons, Doctor. They're cute, they're adorable. But their weapons, built in a lab, mixed in a test tube and grown in a can. Weapons, plain and simple, Brissell said. He said he spooned and sighed again. They were designed to look cute and harmless, even to the enemy, unless they were in combat mode. The Combine's willingness to use child soldiers is morally reprehensible, Lutman said, pursing his lips again. Brassal's fingers had electricity snarl around them for a moment before he got it under control. Creating genetically manipulated weapons is a violation of countless laws. Creating a genetically manipulated weapon is a violation of countless laws, not to mention immoral and unethical, Ludman said, his voice suddenly becoming stuffy. Laws that the Imperium, the Combine, and even the Federation before them all voted upon and became signatories too. How old are you, Doctor? Brissell asked quietly. Forty-two. What difference does that make? Ludman asked haughtily. How old are you? One hundred and eighty-seven, Brissell said. So you were born before the glassing, Ludman said. Well, ethics has evolved quite a bit since... His words trailed off as Brissell put one heavily calloused, scarred hand on the table. The skin over the knuckles split to reveal heavy spikes on top of the caps of the wall steel laced bone below. You don't get to talk to me about ethics. Not now, not ever, Doctor, Brissell snarled. Purple lining danced across the exposed wall steel. The excuse of it was for war isn't gonna fly, Brissell, Ludman said. What was done to those girls, putting them in endless cryosleep, is going to come back to you, just as Druv, Daxon, and Coleman's crimes are coming back to them. Brissal stood up slowly, picking up his spoon and the yogurt container. He looked down at the smaller, younger man. You were born after Antil. The war was all but one when you were born. So, Lidman asked, that means you don't ever get to judge me or anyone else who fought that war. Who pushed back against the mantid when we were pushed to the brink? Had one foot in the grave, 
Prasal said, You don't get to judge us. Judge our actions or judge the lengths we went to to merely survive. Prasal motioned with his spoon to the space outside the starship that was moving through hyperspace. People like you think that they can judge us by the standards and by what is acceptable today. Without a care for what it was like, then, Prasal said, would you judge those weapons for what they did defending their homeland and their home world? Ludman closed his mouth, folding his arms, refusing to answer. Purcell motioned again with a spoon. Those girls, those are our sins. But you don't get to judge the devil and the war in hell from the comfort of heaven. Ludman looked away. Brissell moved out of the room, taking his yogurt with him. He wasn't about to miss out on the best part of his yogurt. Dr. Ludman sat in the now empty chow hall, fuming. Brissell looked at the Imperium judge, heavy war steel manacles on his wrists, keeping him bound in the courtroom. He was standing up, the orange jumpsuit with the yellow stripe down the back, waiting for the words of the judge. He knew that Dr. Ludman was behind him. The little weasel had come every day, both before and after he testified to Brissell's part of rocking away something better left to sleep away eternally. The court had offered him leniency if he simply divulged the location of the obelisk, divulging the information of the black box project that he had worked on. He had refused. The doctor cleared his throat, continuing his speech. Four crimes against sentience. The Scot and the Timperium sentence you to life imprisonment with hard labor. Is there anything that you have to say that might change the decision of the court? The judge said. Wrath and fury shall fall upon the heads of the murderers of the digital Omni Messiah. Brissal snarled. Strike the prisoner's words from the record, the judge snapped. He glared. Anything else? Brissell just stood there. The judge banged his gavel. Brissell could feel Ludman's smug vindication and saw it when the heavily armored bailiffs led him to the courtroom. Brissell smiled at Ludman and spoke, just loud enough for Ludman to hear. I'll never tell you where they are or how to get to them. You'll never feel their skin beneath your hands. Priscell grinned. Ludman's look of pure hatred buoyed Priscell's spirits all the way to Titan. The prison complex was smoking, damaged as Priscell stood beneath Saturn's ever-present mass. A living legend, one of the immortals, strode through the wreckage. Here and there he called out for medics to attend to the wounded guards. The immortal stopped in front of Priscell. Looking him up and down. If I ask in the name of my brother, the digital Omni Messiah, long may his code illuminate the dark spaces of our souls, the location of that which you delivered unto sleep, would you give me what I ask for? The immortal asked. Nay, I would not, not even to the digital Omni Messiah himself, Priscilla said. The immortal nodded, the light of Saturn reflecting off the rimless spectacles, hiding his grey eyes. Then come, brother. Daxon has set aside the mantle of Philip and calls those who will support him to war once again, the immortal said. The Imperium shall burn for their treachery. Brissel went down onto one knee. My life for the Omni Messiah. The immortal's hand rested on Priscell's head. 
Rise! There was a silence for a moment and the crackle of flames becoming hushed. And serve. Terran Confederacy. That's nine votes for total war, one abstain. Motion is carried. God help us all. The obelisk slowly rose out of the bubble of the not-quite-formed space. The runes burned coldly on the surface. A warship rose with it, massive, twisted superstructure and strange lines. Brissel stared at the display as it cleared, his hand held up to hold off the thunder of his ship's massive guns. He had slumbered long in the depths of the not space, but his guns were alive as he waited to see who dared wake him from his sleep. The image cleared to reveal the daughter of the immortal who stood on the bridge of a ship crewed entirely by her siblings. She was short, her black hair cut short, her face plain, her eyes dark. She recited ancient codes, chanted ancient permissions, cast spells forbidden to mortals that had long since forgotten such things. Priscilla closed his fist. The guns went dead. The small human female did not bother with the suit, did not bother with fiction. She would not insult the grave watcher with such untruths. He was an ancient, from the time of the immortals, from the time of her father. And he deserved respect. She followed the watcher as the massive figure moved through the dark and the silent halls of Obelisk, a.k.a. Black Box 536169-6C6F72-204D6F6F6E. A clunky-looking robot replaced an ancient fuse whose impedance had grown too much as the two walked through the hallways. Finally, they reached an unremarkable room on the center of the obelisk. There were no chains, no comforts offered, just a single waist-high rectangular pillar with a faintly glowing square on top. The small woman put her hand against the data pad. Data scrolled by in midair, stopping at the very end. Activate, project. She touched the yes icon. The girl's eyes fluttered open. She was a Lolita sorceress of the Salem Moon Sisterhood, and she was born whole. End of chapter. Chapter 259. Interlude. It was one of the oldest sections in the Unified Civilized Council claimed space, referred to by the documents all the way back into antiquity as Heard Home. The small cluster of several dozen planets in twelve light-year bubble was believed to be the oldest planet land worlds in existence. The planets were all xenoformed, something that the Unified Council had forbidden since nearly the inception, lest the xenoforming destroy microbes that would eventually become sentient species. All had two continents, one on each side of the globe, that were perfectly curated into Lanaclan paradise. One could not immigrate there, only by virtue of being born in her home could one even visit. The worlds produced little more than food feeding nearly two-thirds of Lanaclan population who could afford real grain cud, but was paradise all the same. Fully, completely automated since time began, the Lanaclan who dwelt on the paradise worlds of Herd Home wanted for nothing, suffered no discomfort, and were coddled from the womb to reclamation. 
Their lives were nothing more than contentment within the oldest great herd in the known universe. But not everyone was content. On one world, often considered the oldest, where now and then water erosion would expose fossilized remains of planet land and other six-legged creatures, bringing about flights of wonder of those who lived in the herd home and were privy to view such restored wonders. There lived a Lanark land who would be the downfall of the most ancient of groupings, who would bring about the end of Lanark land superiority far more than any fleet ever would, through the simple act of being himself. At the wrong place, at the wrong time, for the rest of the Lanark land galaxy. Sko'o, Sko'o up knew he wasn't a popular Lanark land. He knew people he shouldn't know, and he owned things he shouldn't own and he consumed things that he shouldn't consume. Unlike the majority of the Lanarkal land surrounding him, and what he considered the cut-induced haze of mediocrity, he had found the year or so that the Terrans had been around to be extremely exciting. He'd scoured Galnet for everything that he could, even though Galnet had been wasteland of what he considered gore-porn and torture voyeurism forced upon everyone by the precursor machine's hatred for anything living. He owned Terran video games, he watched Terran movies, he read Terran literature. He also knew people who could do things that weren't supposed to be done. Which is why he was sitting in a stoplight, his vest and flank covering and a sash of the seat next to him, on the main arterial road through the middle of the city in a ground vehicle that was capable of such outrageous speeds that he could roar past a mile and a half in a few seconds less than a minute which is why his tendrils quivered at excitement as he watched the stoplights ahead of him, on the blocks ahead of him, go from do not cross to uh, you may safely proceed. The lights had been spoofed by the device hidden in the dash of his vehicle, just as the cameras would not record his vehicle's speed, nor who was inside of it at the time it was being driven. He owned things he should not own which was why he was listening to Terran music, that howling, barbaric, thunderous cacophony that so enticed his nerves as he watched the lights. One by one they approached, burning amber in the night. When the one in front of him changed, he stomped his hoof on the pedal, an illegal modification to his vehicle, and the vehicle's tire lost friction, squeezing against the asphalt and smoke billowed out from under the car turned a glowing purple by illegal lights beneath the souped-up vehicle. The vehicle roared forth, invisible on the spotlight cameras, undetectable by the speed sensors. Sko'o up grinned maniacally as he shifted gears, using, of all things, a primitive lever-operated shifting system. Running the wonderful arcade clutch as he shifted to second gear and his tires squealed. The crude leather seat he sat on was warm as he sped down the main motorway of the city. He knew the city was only 15 miles, that he would only take slightly less than 10 minutes to make the entire drive. But he looked forward to the exciting drive at the end of every weekly work shift. Walls were whipping by and the car's speedometer was pegged out at 30 miles an hour. The engine roaring, the Darren music blasting, and the steering wheel vibrating in his hand as he pressed on the clutch, shifted to third, and popped the clutch as he hammered into an accelerator. The tires broke traction and gave out a stuttering squeal. 
Just as the truck pulled out from where the garage door had rolled up, Squirrel up tried to swerve. The back of his vehicle slewed out, and he hit the back of the truck. Blastial, warping, twisting, screaming as his car was reduced to wreckage. The back of the truck damaged, and he was ejected from the vehicle. The seat ended up in the back of the vehicle. One of the contents of the vehicle was pulled into the wreckage even as Koa-Up was ejected, and the mangled wreckage tumbled two blocks before it hit an automated street sweeper and came to a rest intermixed with the wreckage of the street sweeper a bare two seconds after the spoofing devices in his vehicle failed. The computer annotated that there had been a vehicle wreck and dispatched automated systems to examine the wreck. It noted unemotionally that there was a Lanaclam corpse inside. Flank, sash, and vest all ID'd as a corpse of Skowoa, the digital systems engineer second class. The master computer system deactivated Skowoa's data link, transferred the deceased accounts to a proper system accounts, and then put his belongings and apartment up for purchase or lease. The master computer determined that there was no reason to bother going through extensive IDs or ordering the Lanaclan corpse to be delivered to the corpse reclamation building only a few hundred feet from the site of the accident. It deleted Skoop's living file after double-checking that the unfortunate Lanaclan had had all of his information put in the deceased records repository. The master computer system went back to the rest of his duties of running all the planets heard home. The truck continued on to its destination. It backed in and the robots noted the damage, then removed the cargo. The computer systems checked the weight, found it with intolerance, and dumped it into the reclamation systems, destroying the seat from Skoop's vehicle as well as the 60 Lanaclan corpses. The robots picked up the corpse from the vehicle and delivered it back to the identification and pre-reclamation building. The computer noted that an arrived corpse had already been processed, Noted that Skoop had been killed in a vehicle wreck and attributed the processing damage to the vehicle wreck. As for Skoop, he woke up in the bushes and realized three things. Number one, he was somehow still alive. Number two, his implant was turned off. Number three, he was naked. He got up and looked around, feeling a little shook up after his high-speed wreck. He saw a doorway and moved over to it. He tried his fingerprint, but got nothing. The reason the system rejected his prints. Sighing, he held down several buttons at once, and when the system beeped and flashed, he typed in the universal maintenance code and went inside. When he trotted out ten minutes later, he was dressed again and he had been unable to pay for his clothing. So he had reset the system, used the administrative password of the password on the system, and deleted the clothing from the inventory. He had noted a little oddity. He kept getting erased from their system by the master company's system's error-checking software. Even the video of him crossing the street has his image deleted. Skowoop was grinning as he trotted down another store, bypassed the security, and went in. There, he had the robots installed better data link hardware, updated the hardware, and then did a bit of quick work on the hollow terminal to crack open the security and rewrite part of the software. For some reason, he was invisible to the system. For a while, he trotted around the city. Rawsek, Corpsek, and even Exacsek couldn't see him. He theorized that the master's computer system was editing him out of the retinal displays. While some people could see him, he always dressed nicely unless he was up to trouble. 
So, for the most part, people ignored him. He was standing in a park shooting at automated toy boats he'd purchased with instant credits, which meant typing in paid in full in the ledger and editing the infantry with an exact sex plasma rifle that he'd trotted in and taken from the armory after deleting it from the inventory. Why are you doing that? A lovely voice asked. He turned around and saw her fully, roughly his own age, looking at him with curiosity. She was the first person who had actually spoken to him in a week. Because I can, he said. May I try? she asked. He smiled. Certainly, come here and I'll teach you how to shoot. Love bloomed amongst the plasma blasts. I've never been to Groetetelo, the female, Sha'amala'a, said, smiling as she ate her food. They were at a high-class restaurant in the orbital station. Skowawa up had altered the ship's registry to erase their additional weight, and they'd hitched a ride with a resupply shuttle. Skowawa up checked the data link, easily bypassing the security. There's a hydroponics luxury food ship heading there. It's going the slow way, so it'll take three months, Skowawa said. Hmm, it's completely automated. But it has cabins. Oh, let's do that. We can pretend we're farmers, Sha'amala'a said, clapping her hands. Skowawa triggered a quick engine re-inspection and tagged one of the old maintenance shuttles to take the two of them to the massive hydroponic ship. They held hands and skipped down the hallway to the shuttle after the meal. The master control computer had noted the cascading errors and sent a notice for a technician to the master control stations. A shuttle to the orbital stations had used too much fuel to get to orbit and dock with the station. The cargo was way, it was correct, but no simulation would use that much fuel. It was 800 pounds of magically appeared during the flight to orbit and then vanished when docked. The master control computer altered the shuttle's weight by 800 pounds, figuring aging diagnostic circuits. The next 30 shuttles shot off in space, far too much thrust used, had vanished. The master control computer ran diagnostics to figure out what was wrong. Skowawap pranced around the hydroponics garden with Shamalala'a, both of them gloriously nude as they picked berries and ate, grazed on the rare expensive grains, and enjoyed the luxury hydroponics even as they cared for them. Three months had been decided as too little, and Skowawap had reduced the drive power so that the trip would take twice as long. The six-month trip passed too quickly for the both of them, but the luxury planet of Grootetoo were weighted. Skowawap adjusted the sensor to ignore the weight of him and his paramour when the Grootetoo orbital control computer tried to reject the ship request for orbit. The orbital control computer checked the weight with its altered sensors and allowed it to orbit. The shuttle was 800 pounds overweight, but then the numbers bobbled and as if it was on track. The shuttle landed and it was unloaded. The weight of the cargo was correct, but the fuel consumption was off. The next shuttle that lifted off was 800 pounds too light. The orbital control computer ordered the shuttles grounded. The master control system noted that the ship had taken twice as long as rejected ran diagnostics, and didn't find any decrease in engine output during the trip or during diagnostics. It ordered other ships to increase drive speed. Cargo ships began overshooting their targets and arriving at other planets or just vanishing. 
Shomop and Shamaala'a were shocked to discover that nobody lived on the luxury resort planet. It was entirely automated. The entire planet empty. Only robots that tended the grain fields, maintained the results, and controlled the weather. They played ancient games on the manicured lawns, enjoyed meals by the long-neglected chefs, and wondered at the vistas of the luxury planet. The master control computer checked the weight of the last arrival that moved into orbit. 800 pounds off. It denied authorization. The ship joined the hundreds of ships in orbit around the planet. Across the herd home system, every ship, every shuttle, registered its 800 pounds light. Outside of parameters, so they refused landing or takeoff or even authorization to leave orbit. Hundreds of cargo ships orbited every world with dozens arriving every day. The master control computer signaled it needed a firmware and system check. In an abandoned room, in a forgotten facility, on an empty luxury and green production planet, a single amber light kept blinking next to a small display. System error, alert administrator. The light kept blinking into an empty room whose door read, No admittance. A poster beside the door bragged of any who might see it might enter the facility and undergoing automation that would allow it to be run by just one being, allowing all others who might have to work their time to instead join life in luxury. The estimated completion date was long past due, so the light kept blinking, forgotten. Look, more shooting stars, Amala R said, pointing at the sky. Let's make a wish like Terran children. The quartet of cargo ships that had been sent to have their massive cargo holds filled with grain tumbled as they entered the atmosphere and began to burn up as the fuel ran out and the orbits decayed. Over 800 pounds of weight, the weight of two full-grown Lanictalan, who stared at the sky and watched the shooting stars, holding hands and making wishes. End of chapter. Chapter 260. Hesla. Muxtet stared off for a second at the heavily armored Terran females, noticing that they all had red stripes on their fuzzy faces, whiskers, large round eyes, feline ears, and looked far too young to be clad in such heavy armor. They all howled aloft their roaring, clattering chainsaws and screamed in one howling, bloodlust-filled voice. They roared out. Muxtet turned his attention back to the attackers, knowing that the precursors wouldn't care about what was going on inside the walls until they reached inside the walls. If even then. The Glankers were still out of range of his stub SMG, so he knelt bound behind the barrier, keeping just his eyes on the top of his helmet above the battle-steel laminated Ceramocrete. Doki, doki, doki! sounded out from a thousand voices. The platform shook as a firing stand took the weight of the Necomarines jumping onto the wall. Muxtet expected them to rush the enemy with the chainsaws and their brutal-looking stubby weaponry. Instead, they were grouped up into teams of five, two holding heavy guns with another feeding an ugly-looking weapon ammunition, the fifth one standing up, torches on her shoulders burning with a pink and white flame aiming her chainsword and calling out nonsense syllables that seemed to make sense to the others. The ones with the chainsaws called out, somehow screaming out emojis, even as the clankers rushed forward. 
Muxted noticed these two Terran door gunners had stopped firing, joining a team of only three of the strange-looking Terrans. Herodado! The chainsaw wielding ones howled out. The Glanxers, sensing a lull in the firepower, gave out their own war cry. You belong to us, Herodado! They yelled. You belong to us, Boca Maria Shemaya! The chainsaws came down. Doki, 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 was screamed out as the guns opened up. The Glankers didn't finish their war cry. Most of the Hessler screamed in sudden terror as a massive 30mm guns of the Doki girls held open up, the eight barrels rotating minigun ripping out 92 rounds a second of mass reactive high explosive armor piercing incendiary shells. It took less than a second for Muxted to realize that they were only firing one second bursts letting off the trigger for a full second or two before firing a full second again. The Neko Marines fired in teams and right side firing, then the left side. Muxted knew what he was staring. His mouth was hanging open. Just staring past the wall at the enemy forward charge just dissolved, where before there were dozens, a score, a hundred to take a place of every one that was killed. The interlocked, steady firepower of the Doki girls not only stopped the advance dead, but started pushing it back from the wall. The leader of each five-man team jumped down with what sounded to Muxted like Joan, waving her chainsaw. The two left jumped down while the right one kept firing, opening fire to the left side and jumped down. Muxted watched as the doki girls would fire, let off the trigger, take two steps and fire again. Moving up first left, then right, then with one of the chainsword and the heavy-looking SMG, always two steps ahead. Iron 73 sent over a link. Happy icons coming next. Brrrt, brrrt, brrrt. Muxted just stared at the second wave of them landing on the parapet. These ones packed bulky, unfinished-looking missile weapons and weapons that had belts that Muxted recognized as 40mm variable loadout grenades. All of them. Smeared with the pink and white paint, smiley faces, emojis, and triangles. There was a fist sound that made his teeth tingle, and the one with the missile launchers gave a shout, firing missiles at the clankers in the air. The larger armored ones that were still approaching. Muxted let his SMG fall to his side, suddenly feeling completely useless as the ones carrying the grenade launchers and the missile launchers jumped down. Hustling up before their advancing sisters and a third wave jumped up onto the wall. All of them carrying heavy flamethrowers, pink and white fire dripping from the ends of the nozzles. Doki, 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 doki! They shrieked as one. Muxted saw in places where pink and white lightning arced up from the ones firing or feeding the guns to envelop the leader, who would throw back her head and howl in rage. The banners affixed to the back of their armor snapped in the wind. The pink and white ribbons on their armor streamed behind them, and none of the clankers return fire seemed to have any effect. Technomancer! 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 973 squealed over the data link, flashing icons of glee. Muxted turned around and saw a robed and wizened old man lean on a staff of twisted black wood and wall steel. Pink and white crystals embedded in the star. Pink and white skulls orbiting him. Some of the sides of Muxted's hand. Others looking for all the world like Talcan skulls. Hey! 
Muxted yelled, leaping off the parapet and onto the ground, running towards his striker. The skulls were swarming his vehicle, their jaws opening up to break the black mist onto his damaged and battered striker. He had almost reached the bent and wizened figure when they lifted their staff in both hands and called out in a single word of English. Muxted skidded to a stop as the lightning, this time red, black, purple, pink and white, roared from the end of his staff, covering his striker. The temperature seemed to drop to an almost freezing as the wind pulled him towards the striker. His teeth ached and lightning-strewn black clouds swirled around his hidden striker. He could hear the popping sounds, a weird crackling noise and feel goosebumps rise up on his skin. I will heal your machines, war spirits pain, the ancient turret said, his voice strong and steady. The smoke, lightning, wind and mist ebbed away and Muxted knew he was gawking. His striker looked heavier, the guns had more than previous barrels and the weapon pod wings were thicker, longer and packed three pod mounts instead of two. Zingy zingy, 973 said. Vehicle all fixedy 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 doki spritzy. Take the pain they intend upon inflicting and return it to the enemy, my son, the figure said, heat rippling off of him as the skulls swooped back down to orbit him, smoke pouring from them, fire wreathing them, the black mist oozing from their jaws. Muxted hurried over to his striker, climbing in. It felt strange, heavier. Older, almost like it was trembling in urgency. Foxtrot 902, mount the vehicle, Muxted said, sitting down in the pilot's seat, feeding it cradling. He locked into the buckles, looked down at the five-point harness, and leaned back, feeding the neural jack slam into his head rather than the squirming gentleness he was used to. He gasped, feeling as if he was sustained a hard blow to the base of his skull. Everything went white for a second, and it felt as if his heart stuttered for a second. The striker came alive to his senses. The main fusion plant thrummed with his heart, the intakes moved with his lungs, and the electrical impulses moved like blood through his veins. It took him a moment to realize he needed to open his eyes. Lost for a second in the striker herself. The pilot seat next to him was gone, replaced by a massive heavy gun that looked more like something a tank should carry than a striker. The armor glass was covered in retractable armor shields, and he knew he was sitting in a wall steel laminate tub. One by one his crew got on board, the mantids all chittering with glee as they looked at their stations in the maintenance spaces. Combat control, this is Foxtrot 902, back in the fight, providing close air support. He went to look for what the airstrip was called and floated up in his brain. Air Combat Support Alpha 2-2. Welcome back to the fight, calm voice of Muxted recognized as one of the Terran communications specialists. Logging you as active close air support in ACS Alpha 2-2. Give him hell and fury. Muxted felt the hair down his spine try to raise. Rage that he could understand, desperate fury he could understand. But the Terrans had started talking like they were all sitting around in a park discussing a particularly interesting documentary. Doki 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 came over the headset, his retinal display translated. Marking with pink and red smoke, close air support needed heavy tanks approaching, which made him shake his head. Kick it, 
Private Mulprit whooped as Muxted slammed the striker up and out, banking hard. He could see the battlefield around him, see how the doki girls caught up to the tanks and were moving with them, the ones waving the chainsaws jumping onto the turret of the tank. They all cried out in gibberish, and Muxted almost burst out laughing when the translation came through. Drive me closer, I want to hit him with my sword! Flashed over the head of one of the ones waving the chainsword on top of the tank. Muxted banked, coming around hard, checking the massive gun next to him and goggling at the fact that it was a 40mm rapid-fire heavy cannon with its own dedicated nanoforge. His missile loadout held weapons that made his skin crawl. He concentrated on his firing run. He could see the pink and red smoke, but see through it at the same time. The striker's senses interwoven seamlessly with his own. The tanks were using a mangled wreckage of a ship nearly a half mile long as cover between the tanks of the 3 and 17th themselves. The clankers tried to get a lock and he rolled, pulling chaff, flares and microprism smoke, leveling out and coming in hard. The guns cut loose and Muxted felt as if he was a paint mixer for a moment his speed actually dropping slightly as the massive 40mm gun next to him ripped through 80 rounds in a single push of the rocker switch. The rounds slammed into the battle screens and psychic shielding bunched through the clanker's armor and detonated deep inside the hull, the tank slewing to the side and exploding into chunks. Why the hell haven't we been using these goddamn designs? Muxted asked himself as he nudged the rocker again and another clang attack died. What is this design? Admiral Thennis asked, shivering slightly from the cold sweat that had covered her. She watched as one massive, twisted black ship let loose a barrage that made her ship tremble even ten light seconds away. She glanced down at the repeater next to her couch, rubbing her forearms in hopes of banishing the tingling ache in her limbs. Bismarck! The guns of the Chromium Kraut Marine cannot be denied. Hood, quit boasting and fire for effect at 332.32. Bismarck, so it shall be. Taste the wrath of the Chromium Krautland. Singing duck, in the name of fire, fear and frenzy, none shall escape my guns. Glor, in the name of the Omnimissile. We deny you, defiled ones, in the name of the hated universe, we spit our wrath at you, forsaken ones. In the name of the murdered Terrasol, we bring vengeance and hatred upon you, degenerate spawn of the forgotten and reviled beings. Yamato, phased wave plasma motion gun, one cooling, retracting phased wave plasma gun two, Firing battery three. Missile defense holding steady. Battle shield holding steady. Engines to 35%. Moving to cut off target echo. We lost Terrasol's children. And we shall blaze with the fury of murdered star. Atlas. Moving into repair Betty Boop. All technical and repair devices at 100%. Nanoforges at 100%. Creation engines at 100%. Mass reservoirs at 83%. Estimated time to completion of repairs is two nine minutes. Mark. Missouri. Duck. Star. Bismarck. Arizona. Kagar. With me. We're going to break that wormhole. Prepare to go to rapid fire. We'll clog their incoming vectors with our own wreckage. 
Kagar. Roger. Prepping fruit fires for combat. Dennis pulled her attention away. As fascinating as the talk between the ancient and terrible ships was, she had a battle to run. She looked around her command center and sighed. She closed her eyes for a long moment, the ache in her hands fading. And Guac turned around to the sound of an alarm and stared. Admiral Thennis's eyes were open, but it was obvious she saw nothing but the great final secret. The alarms waiting, summoning medical to the flag bridge, but Nguoc had seen plenty of death over the last few decades. Before she could say anything, there was a purplish flash and dark indigo and violet smoke, thick and heavy looking, puffed from the mid-air next to the Admiral. The smoke swirled, revealing a Terran woman in ancient Combine Admiral's uniform. Well, kind of. The skirt was short, the leggings dark grey, and the top was open to reveal a white shirt that was stained with the blackish blood below the gashed open throat. The woman's hair was black, her eye sockets full of purple fire. The bargain was made, the price is paid, the soul for the black feet, as I have been tasked together. The woman gurgled, the touch the admiral's brow, and vanished before Admiral Thennis's son could protest. Commodore and Guac touched a temple. The Admiral is down. Cancel medical alert. We'll explain later. Shift command, Captain Nathalian. Ma'am, the sensor tech called out, pointing at the screen. And Guac looked on time to see the space bulge, ripple, and split open, dark matter spreading from the wound and bursting into flame. Despite the impossibility of it all. A version of Steamboat Willie made large, dozens of guns for each one, meters of armor for each inch of thickness, tore its weight into real space. The battle screens flowed and sparkled, the engines roared with the power as the vessel pushed itself from the grave into battle. Steamboat Willie has joined the chat. Steamboat Willie, the chromium hammer of the Confederacy, has arrived. Glow. Welcome, baby sister. Even in death, we serve. Bismarck, by your side, little sister. Kagar, we are the bulwark that the enemy shall break upon. Why, we welcome you, little sister. Commodore and Guac swallowed thickly. Nobody would be able to beat what she had seen when shit-talking at the back of the officers' club at 0200 went down. She not only had seen the birth of one of the ships of the Black Fleet, she had served under its undying captain, and seen the Admiral of the Black Fleet with her own eyes. She turned to her concentration to the battle at hand, trying to ignore the sudden chill of mortality that went down her spine at the memory that she was old enough that her knees hurt now. Kalvak reached out, the body frame whining, and grabbed the sleeve of the nurse that was rushing by. What's happening? He asked, gasping slightly at the feeling of the tingling pain down his regenerated and rebuilt spine. The nurse looked at the Delta Marine. We're under heavy attack. The enemy is landing in force. We're evacuating patients as soon as we can get an evac point. Now, if you excuse me, I have critical patients to check. Kalvak let go and watched the nurse bustle away. He swallowed around a lump of ice in his throat and lifted up his left arm. Flexing a muscle he didn't have, so a panel popped open. 
3D, you there, he typed. He looked around, noting that he wasn't the only one in the rehabilitation and ongoing patient area. The other three men were unconscious, recovering from physical therapy and nerve regeneration. Here, yeah, you, the little green man did said. Meet me, come here. Roger, roger, sneaky, sneaky, the engineer said. Kalvek looked down at his torso and his legs. His exoskeleton was a temporary thing to help him learn to walk. Use his arms, move around as his spinal cord was rebuilt and rewired. All the telltales, but his arms were red, and ones on his arms were only a single dot of amber instead of the three green dots of full power. After a few moments, during which Kalvek felt the ground shake twice, 222 climbed up, a piece of adaptive camouflage wrapped around him. He flashed a smiley face between his antenna and jerkily waved the cybernetic blade arm at him. Need? The mantan had helped out Kalvek during his recovery, turning up the pain and sensory data at Kalvek's request. Get my exoskeleton at full. Enemy is coming, Kalvek said. Crap, 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 222 replied. He climbed around behind the Talcan and spent a quick minute taking the panel off the back. He overrode the controls, bypassed the medical lockout password by just jumping past the jump and jacking into the control to the max. Kalvex clenched his teeth as pain rolled in. He closed his eyes and let the pain roll over him. This is nothing. I have endured worse. Others have endured worse. You can endure this, he told himself. Ready, ready, 222 told him. He got to his feet, the exoskeleton whining. Worry, wobbling for a moment to get his balance. He felt the exoskeleton sink up better, closer, as if it had been off by a micrometer or two. You sure about this? I am, buddy, Kalvex answered. He staggered out of the recovery area, moving down the hallway. He stopped quickly to grab a Terran adaptive camouflage battle dress out of the closet and pull it over the exoskeleton before staggering out of the medical center. Up to the switchback ramp and into the daylight. The wall guns were running, the point of fence was roaring, and the battle screens were taking a hammering. Calvex wiped his mouth and staggered around the medical center, the exoskeleton seeming to get more and more in sync with every step. By the mechanics area, he found them, two firepower buddies. Can you get them working? Calvex asked. Sure, sure, 222 said. I'll be back, Calvex said. He staggered over to the armory, the exoskeleton hissing. The armory was open, most of the weapons missing. A Terran picked up a box of ammunition and ran back out. A green mantid his implant ID'd as 640 looked up. Roller help, he appeared in his comlick. Help me get strapped up, Kalbik said. The mantid nodded, picking up the impact wrench. End of chapter and that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.